Greetings, ladies and mantle gents, and welcome to this weekly roundup of Tales from Outer Space, taken from TFOS 856 to 869 from the videos on YouTube. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 856 Humans are seen by the galaxy as an unnerving race that lives in the most hostile and eldritch region of the galaxy. Written by Ak-1308 Did I ever tell you of the time I got invited to hell? I did once, you know. A sapient creature made of pure hellfire and radiation asked if I wanted to visit his home. Well, myself and the rest of the crew of the distant knowledge... Let me see if I can make you understand how problematic this would have been for us. This was a world where molten dihydrogen monoxide fell from the sky and pulled ocean-like over most of the surface of the land. And there was an atmosphere made up of mainly oxygen-2 and nitrogen-2, so hot that it had been boiled into a vapor. Yes, vapor. I'm not making this up. Their planet is so close to their star that their life arose from carbon compounds, if you can believe it. Worse, they inhale these vaporized oxygen-2 and nitrogen-2 as a part of their life cycle. It turns my tentacles limp just thinking about it. I personally had trouble with the notion until I learned that their resting temperature is so high that they can melt the hydrogen monoxide at the touch. And in fact choose to ingest it on a regular basis. It makes up for the majority of the circulatory fluids. They do not consider the mineral so much as a transitory material, more usually seen in the molten state. So, if they breathe rock vapor and casually bathe, yes, bathe in molten lava, what, you might ask, do they actually build things out of? The answer to that scared two of our scientists so badly they went puce for three whole cycles. You see, these hell creatures are able to easily work materials that are so far down the bottom of our periodic table that it is not even worth mentioning. They can create and utilize compounds containing iron and even titanium. I swear from the progenitors, I'm not making this up. I don't even want to think about the temperatures involved. Worse... Their tables also includes forbidden materials, more from them than we'd ever expected to understand. They're able to handle these materials without exploding. In fact, I'm pretty sure that they had samples with them that would have spelled doom to our ship just by coming close to us. So, where did we meet these horror creatures, and how did we get out alive? I'm glad you asked. I was second assistant astrogation observer on the distant knowledge, investigating a yellow star system. A ferocious radiation of the horrifically active primary threatened to melt our hull and disrupt our systems, even from hundreds of millions of score away. In fact, we would not have come so close except that there was a gas giant on the verge of our safe limit that we could hide behind if the exterior temperatures threatened to get too high. The gas giant, as predicted, had a very active magnetic field, but we were well shielded. All hail our engineers. So 
that was actually the least of our problems. It also had a small but significant ring somewhere. Nowhere near as impressive as the next one, but uh, it's still interesting. We were charging it, and I was calibrating our backup astrogation sensors when I got a proximity alarm. There had been a heat spike in our vicinity. Movement, we expected. That was a ring system with moons here and there. Heat was more of a problem. Our systems were handled the star's radiation, but a closer heat source could breach the hull and kill us without warning. I sounded the alarm, then turned the sensor that way. One of the pieces of the ring, a chunk of ferrous material which I had idly thought possessed an oddly regular appearance, was moving under its own thrust. Whatever it was using for propulsion sent my temperature gauges off the scale. We were just lucky that it was pointed away from us at the time. Even as I stared at the impossible readouts, the bridge crew reacted and moved us away a safe distance. The unknown object stopped moving when we evaded them. It was an inanimate object to be sure, but when I focused all the sensors I had onto it, I could clearly see signs of engineering work. If I were not much mistaken, it had sensors as well, and they would train on us. We paused then and stared at each other. Two ships from cultures previously unknown to one another, encountering each other around a planet that I was sure neither one of us hailed from. Where were they from, what they knew, what they had to say? I had no idea, but I wanted to know. Things got busy then. The scientists commandeered the sensors, searching every inch of the iron rock someone adopted for any clue of its origins or intentions. We probed it with careful analysis beams, hoping not to provoke it into attacking. Signals were sent along various frequencies. Scientists argued until they were green in the face over the material composition of the thing. Various alloys were impossible to create or work, so we had to be getting false readings. And then, one of the passive sensors picked up a signal originating from the iron rock, on a frequency that we could not only receive but also replicate. We decoded the signal, a simple numeric sequence. We sent an answer back. The excitement that permeated the distant knowledge was palpable. We were making first contact with a brand new culture, the first such thousand star cycles. Information began to flow back and forth in a stream that deepened and widened with each new understanding. I was pressed into service, receiving messages and passing them on, then recording them to send back. And then we got images, aligning them with the true color image of the gas giant, nicknamed Red Spot for the giant cloud formation, gave us a picture of what these people looked like. They actually looked pretty interesting. Bipedal, which wasn't totally unusual. Two limbs for ambulation, two for manipulation. Skin of a pinkish color that on you or me would indicate violent nausea, but was apparently normal for them. Extraneous growths on the front and top of the brain case, which was also not unusual. Exterior coverings, which suggested that they had imperfect internal temperature controls. We arranged for images to be sent back. I was one subject, 
and I was allowed to wear my graduate honor sash and show them our educational standards. It made me feel extremely strange to know that the alien eyes, alien minds, would be examining an image of me. To them, I would represent our species. And then came the most amazing message. They literally invited us to visit their planet. I mean, uh, you know how much of a trust thing that is. Even amongst the concordant, member states would spend tens of solar cycles feeding one another before revealing where their home planets were. But here, these people were literally saying, Would you like to come visit? Would we? Of course we would. Besides, we'd collected all the data we really needed from this cash giant system. Getting away from the horrifically violent yellow star would make us all a lot happier. In all honesty, we wondered what kind of shielding system the Iron Wrath had on board to let us just casually soak up the deadly radiation without suffering multiple system failures. Their drive thrust should really have been a clue there, but we were too excited to see it for what it was. So we asked them where would we be going. Which star system was host to these new and exciting people? The answer stunned us all. This one right here. Accompanying the message, just to prove we hadn't misunderstood, we got an image of the star itself, with the sigil pointing at a tiny blue dot off to the side. That was their planet. That was their planet! As far as we were from the system's primary, that planet we feverishly calculated, had to be at least 80% closer. It was cheerfully orbiting within the raging inferno of the solar energies, surviving a hellish radiation bath that would easily destroy distant knowledge 10 or 20 times over. And these people came from there. What were they made of? One of the scientists sent a message. We should have asked this sooner. Abandoned to the message was a request for the very information. In the meantime, we began collating the same data for the reply. You know what we got back? A resting temperature that would melt rocks. A circulatory system that amounted to molten lava. Vapor state oxygen and nitrogen as their very breath of life. They were from the very depths of hell. And they had invited us to visit. All in innocence, of course. But that didn't change matters. We would never greet one another face to face, as it were. I would never get to breathe the same atmosphere as these youthful aliens whose images I had received and stared at. Friends, we would be allies even, but never close, never visiting. Well, until now. See, the distant knowledge is shipping out again next week, and I'm going with it. Some big brain amongst the scientists had an idea. And so we've decided to go back and see if we can make contact with them again. Each side is going to construct telepresence robots on the other side and visit by proxy in that way. It's going to be clunky and probably won't work nearly as well as they hope it will. But it's a proof concept. I've been tapped to run one of the robots on our side. I get to wear the suit. I get to walk with humans. Wish me luck. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 857. Story number one. The Quiet Woods. Written by Digital 332006. Naveen found his job rather boring. 
This is not to say it was not an important job. It was likely the one with the greatest importance to his species' survival. Monitoring communications from space was a life and death task. If doom was to come to this world, it would be from an outside force. In the 374 years of this agency's existence, 17 instances of extraterrestrial life had been identified. They had called out into the empty darkness, looking for companions. Their messages were full of hope, peace, and curiosity. Each and every time, they had been forced to remain quiet, unable to warn the seemingly friendly aliens about what was to come. A few years after the initial broadcast, the message's tones would shift. They would ask for help, assistance fighting an enemy that threatened their world. The calls for help grew ever more desperate as time went on. Until one day, they stopped asking for help and simply warned others for as long as they could. Three years after contact with the enemy was the longest any had survived, the signals never coming back again. Naveen had been working here for two of these incidents, and now would be for a third. He wished he could warn them to go quiet so as to not be found, but in doing so would reveal his own homeworld. This new message was markedly different than those he'd seen before. Made up of ones and zeros, it seemed a bit of a puzzle solving would be required to decipher the message. Forwarding the relevant information to his superiors, Naveen waited for a reply. Surely a team would be created to work on this project. Perhaps pertinent information would be available in this 1,679-bit long message. A few weeks later, Naveen received a reply in his communications. The team had been able to decode the message, and he was shocked to see that they included a crude representation of their solar system. This would give the invaders, if they managed to decode the message, an easy way to find where they had come from. Navin prayed for the species that the invaders would not discover them, but it was a slim hope. He continued monitoring for transmissions by this new species, and time went on. Eight months was all it took this time for the enemy to find them. New messages began appearing, asking for help, support, or information. Naveen had some information regarding the invaders at his disposal, but there was no safe way to transmit it. He only could watch in horror as another species became extinct. Memories of them only remaining in the PQD agency. This time, the calls for help only lasted a few weeks before the signal went dark. It was a stark reminder to him and his people that it was better to remain quiet and unseen. This incident catalogued and forgotten about, Asim resumed his duties. It was quite a surprise when a little less than two years later, signals from the world began coming in again. The signal was bigger and stronger than before, implying a technological breakthrough. This new message was transmitted using a technology he was familiar with, the Invader's multi-spectrum wave emitter. With just a few tweaks, Naveen was able to have it play back in audio form. Hello, uh, sorry about the delay. We were attacked, but it's all over now. Um, 
We're humanity, and we will soon be visiting you, thanks to our newly acquired starships. We wish to convey our purpose as one of peace and exploration. We mean you no harm. We look forward to meeting you and establishing a peaceful dialogue. If uh, that's not your thing, however, bring it. You know where we live. Levin swallowed hard. This new species had managed to not just fend off the invaders, but repel them, and they were out looking for other life. The thought of sending a friendly message out to them occurred to him, but it was a bit above his pay grade. If they were looking for them anyways, perhaps it would be best to come forward first. He uh, wasn't sure what he was more scared of now, the invaders or humanity. End of story. Story number two. Human Psychological Warfare, written by Cal Bynes. The smuggler sighed as handcuffs were put around his wrists from the large crustacean-like creatures as they logged his regular and not-so-regular cargo, then put over the back of the officer as he was brought out of the ship. I greatly object to this mode of transportation, he said as he bounced with the stride of the police officer. The objection noted... As a human, you have the right to remain silent. I suggest you utilize it, the guard said back. Well, that's no fun. Just a very long trip in silence. How'd you get wind of me in the sector, he asked. You and your ship tend to have quite a potent stench. That's quite hard to hide, Locke, the officer said, him and the other officer chuckling to themselves. Well, that's just rude, Locke responded. He was brought into a large jail building and put through an arduous process of being brought in and accounted for, then placed into a holding cell as he awaited the next steps. So, um, how long will my sentence be? Locke asked. For the fifth time, your charges are still in processing. Would you like to see medical in case somehow you injured your hearing receptors? The guard responded. Well, I know, but it's taking forever, he said back. It's been a quarter cycle, said the guard. No matter, my crew and I have been having a debate, Locke stated. Crew? What crew? The guard quickly asked. I mean, uh, bar friends. That happened to stay on my ship every now and again. Locke quickly stammered out. Ah, okay then, continue. The guard, shaking her head as she sent a quick message to a patrol unit. Well, uh, is water wet? Locke asked. What? The guard responded. Is water itself wet? Like, if you put your hands in water, it's wet, right? So, is water wet? Locke asked. Well, it's probably wet then, one of the passing guards said. No, water can't be wet. It can only combine. But that doesn't make wet, the original guard responded. No, just because it can't combine doesn't mean that it can't make something wet. It just can only make things wet, but it can also be wet, the newcomer said. Locke watched from his cell. The two Zultans became increasingly more heated, turning from a jokingly serious argument into a heated debate. Other Zultans joining in as the species started moving away and calling other security groups. The new security groups, however, were mostly Zultan, which only increased the size of the argument. People tried to start and break it up, but were soon shoved back. The Zultan were very smart but in a straight kind of way, which meant that it was very hard for them to disagree with the more complex subjects. 
The Garadan prison riots I've shown as an example of this. The tension in the room growing thick, even for the less empathic species. Then it erupted. Nobody knows quite how it started. Even the cameras not able to see through the sea of bodies. But one person threw the first punch, and the room erupted. The angry yells from before replaced by bellows of rage. The remaining coherent guards quickly moved as many people as they could out of the way, some being dragged into the mass and crushed underneath it. The Garadan riots consumed the prison for days, as the local government had to recruit other species to deal with the riots. As Zultan were more often or not consumed with the question as well. These riots and the ensuing diplomatic chaos had many results. One of the main was that barring of humans from entering of most of Zultan's space, along with Zultan translators now being required to block out many, mostly human, questions that had no real answer to them. As well, was humans being declared a psychological weapon against many species. They were uh, surprisingly prideful of this title. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 858 Black Flag, written by the Mad Crafter The freighter drifted, engines flickering every now and again. The life support had failed hours ago, and the crew inside the stellar carcass, clad in environmental suits as they scrambled as best they could in a zero-G to fix the fading core. Without sensors, the scanner suites and the AI, there was no way that they'd see the Predator sneaking up upon them to pounce. The 840-ton behemoth laden with 600 tons of cargo, precious metals, medical supplies, ship components, a fat, juicy piece of prey for the shadow lurking nearby. Even at full functionality, the massive and bloated whale would have had a hard time evading any kind of interception. A single point-of-fence cannon hung limply on the belly of the freighter, the gun rendered impotent without power from the ship's core. The Predator was patient, lurking just out of the visual range of the bridge crew. Without power, they couldn't tell that they were being scanned over and over again. The Predator was mapping every single corridor, every bulkhead and storage room. It knew precisely where to strike, where to sink its fangs in for a quick and clean hill. Third quadrant, second bulkhead, just above the habitats. The Predator itched closer. The fiends within it itched with the promise of the kill. Somewhere inside, a command was issued. The engines flared to life. The crew aboard the crippled freight only caught a glimpse of the beast as it lunged, a brief bark of warning over the comms before the entire bulk of the ship shook with the impact of the Predator's attack. Less than a moment later, alarms belayed. Hull breach. The Predator's talons dug into the wood steel hull, metal crumpling and tearing from the grip. The boarding ramp slammed home, automated torches burning the hull before breaching charges blew the section inward. The Predator disgorged its children, the tiny forms skittering across a boarding ramp and into the incapacitated hawk. Minor firefights erupted in corridors. Few on both sides died as the invaders quickly made their way towards the cargo compartments. One of the invaders punched in a code. The door sliding open to reveal... Uh, 
Nothing. An empty hold greeted the invaders. No cargo, but a single piece of paper on the floor. The lead pirate looked down at it. Surprise and a cartoon spaceman holding up the middle finger with a black flag on his chest. The invaders' comm suddenly bled to life, a dozen voices screaming about something else out there. Another predator, a bigger predator, and it was pouncing. Dozens of tiny new stars burst into existence, the drives of the boarding torpedoes lighting and sending their payload streaking towards the now immobilized target before two great plumes of blue-white light illuminated the massive alpha of the pack hunters rushing to bite into their chosen prey. The torpedoes rushed forward, AI dodging streaks of point-defense fire. Some burst in little plumes of fire as lucky rounds find purchase, but most close the distance, slowing rapidly before slamming into the other predator's hull, like teeth biting into the flesh as the alpha stalks closer for the kill. Inside, the torpedoes open. Armored figures dropped into compartments and hallways. Aboard the freighter, bulkheads burst open, and similarly armored figures suddenly emerge into the evaders' lines. Chaos reigned. Hours earlier... The freighter, all that glitters, hung in space a thousand kilometers from the Queen Anne Reborn. One vessel, a humble commerce transport, the other one of, if not the most, notorious pirate ships in the sector. But today the Queen Anne wasn't raiding, her gun ports were closed and her boarding torpedoes were cold. Instead, the captain of the most notorious human pirate vessel was aboard all that glitters, unarmed, alone, and with 90 million credit bounty on his head. You can't be serious, Gabriel, the captain of all that glitters, scoffed. As a heart attacked, Darwis replied, the gawky smirk on his face not phasing even a little. Gabriel's laughter was a barking hyena-like cackle as he doubled over, slapping his thighs. Davis simply stood there, his smirk unmoving, it took the freighter captain a moment to regain his breath, a telltale cough from space along overtaking him briefly. The freighter captain gestured at the haphazard and jerry-rigged state of the freighter's command deck. The Hulk is held together with duct tape, chewing gum, and the occasional sticky tissue that Emerson donated during night wash, Gabriel scoffed. Fuck you, sir, Emerson said from his station as the crew laughed. Stop jerking off on your shift, and I might actually pay for you to get fricked at the next shore leave, so that you stop staining my damn screens, Gabriel said before turning back to Davis. This boat is a century and a half old. We're running drives two centuries old. Our drive core is only second generation, and our hull is untreated what steel. We wouldn't last thirty seconds in combat. Darwis swayed in his mag boots idly in the zero-gravity command deck. The captain wasn't wrong. The ship might as well have been a wooden mast ship from the homeworld that had been shot into space for how durable and advanced it was. The Queen Anne Reborn would have had to be extra careful to not just rip it in half if they'd ever attempted to board her. Look, Darwis said, holding out his hands, I know. It seems nuts, but we can both profit here, and big time. 
He waved his hands over to his wrist computer, and a hologram appeared of an alien ship, complete with specs and a big, fat, wanted graphic. It's an Andrexi, he said. It's been scouring these lanes between here and Ursa Major for the last six revolutions. These lanes. I'm sure you all know at least a few vacant traders that aren't coming into port anymore because of this piece of crap. Darwis looked around. More than a few crew were nodding in agreement. A few spat at the sight of the hologram. Even Gabriel's eyes narrowed. It's Hydraxis' ship, Darwis continued. It's vaster and more maneuverable. The Queen Anne couldn't even catch her in the void. But if we can get her to stop, latched onto something, we can slink in and get under her guns. Our boarding torps could get past her point defense. We can pin her between you and us and board her, keep her from running. Gabriel looks around at his crew and he could see that they were all thinking what he was. It was a good plan. A damn good plan. We've only got a few small arms, though, Gabriel countered. Hydraxis raiders will be better armed. While you're busy boarding them, we'll get shredded. Narwis nodded. Now. Hydraxis couldn't process what was happening. The assault had been completely turned as heavily armed and armored combatants that shouldn't have been there were suddenly amongst the boarding party, and more were spilling out into their own ship from more than a dozen boarding torpedoes, piercing their hull. The Andrexi's point defense cannon swiveled and opened fire at the Queen Anne Rubon, turned wide. All sections of the Queen Anne separated from her hull, as massive arms unfolded and held them out as shields to screen the ship from the oncoming fire. Do it now! Darvis shouted over the comms as the Queen Anne Rubon turned hard and dove for their Drexi. Hours earlier. You would, the pirate said, if we denied a few dozen crazy pirates and you ship at key choke points. You hold them just long enough to make them think that they're winning. Then we jump them. Boarding torpedoes will get us inside their ship. Meanwhile, our best guys pop out into the middle of their attack, and suddenly the bugs are in a vice and we squeeze. The Queen Anne comes in, rams our boarding ramp down her throat, and you turn that big... Fat defensive cannon around and drill into her heart and kill her. Now, the core of all that glitters brought to life. The lights in the dim corridors flaring to light to highlight the carnage unfolding within. All that glitters had an unusually large point defense cannon for a ship its size, a deterrent for any would be pirates. The massive GUA-13 cannon fired heavy, armor-piercing incendiary rounds that would give most corvettes or even some frigates pause. It was precisely why Darvis had chosen the ship to spring the trap, and at this range, she couldn't miss. The guns swiveled up just as the Queen of Anne Reborn slammed home, ramming the Andrexi and impaling it on the ship's reinforced boarding ramp. All that glitters fired. The five rotating barrels unleashing hell, chewing yard-wide holes through the attacker's hull and drilling deeper and deeper until it fell her heart. The Andraxi's drive core erupted in a gout of blue flame that bulged from her wound and out on the top of the craft. 
the ship's hull screaming and groaning as it died. Both the Queen Anne reborn and all that glitters, bucking and shuddering from her death throes. Inside, the combatants inside were tossed about like rag dolls, but the more seasoned human pirates and the Hydraxi raiders quickly recovered as the humans pressed their advantage. The Hydraxis had nowhere to go now. Hours earlier. And what are we getting out of this? Gabriel asked, crossing his arms and trying to look as though he wasn't already convinced. We're putting our asses in a vacuum the whole lot more than you are. Darwis's smirk widened to a full grin. We know that she has a full hold, Darwis said. She hit six other heavy freighters in the last two weeks, and she was sighted in this area in the last 72 hours. Which means that she hasn't had a chance to empty her hold yet. We get her cargo. Then what the feck do we get? Gabriel scoffed. Davis tapped on the hologram. Wanted and Draxy Hydrax's pirate vessel. Bounty, 65 billion credits. The Fraser crew went silent. You get to present the carcass and claim the bounty. Now. The pirate shoved the last of the manacled Hydraxes into the cargo hold and closed the door. Repair crews were already working on repairing all their glitters, and the rest were liberating the hundreds of tons of cargo from the Andrexi onto the Queen Anne Reborn, as well as reclaiming the generators that created the sensor ghosts used to lure the Andrexi to the freighter. More than a few of the freighter crew were drinking with the pirates in the corridors of all their glitters, cheering and celebrated the victory. On the command deck, Darwis and Gabriel sat, sharing a bottle of very rare and expensive bourbon from Darwis's personal stock. So, Gabriel asked, hissing as the potent liquid burned down his throat. Why? Darwis downed the shot without hesitation, his feet up on the console. Why what? he asked pouring another round for himself and topping off Gabriel's glass. Why go after the Andraxi? He can't claim the bounty, and a cargo can't be enough to come close to it, he said, sipping and hissing again. Seems like you did this at a loss, Captain. Bad business. Darwish chuckled, nodding a bit and sipping his drink. Principal, he said, making Gabriel raise an eyebrow. Tell me, Captain, your operators have rules, right? Helping each other out, codes of conduct, social contracts, that kind of crap. Gabriel nodded. Of course, keeps everyone flying, keeps the goods moving, everyone gets home and everyone gets paid. Dawa sipped again, staring at the video feed of the Andraxi's corpse outside. Piracy isn't any different, whether it's human, Solarian, Frengara. We're all agreed to certain rules, he said sipping on his drink again. The Andraxi broke those rules. She was here as a revenge for our victory over some ally of the Hydraxes. Don't freaking know who, but who can keep track with every freaking conflict nowadays? He took a bigger drink. Early on, she killed the civilian transport because they didn't have any valuable cargo. Wanted to send a message that they meant business or some shit. Darwis took another long drink. Well, that's bad for the rest of us. Governments overlook us most days, but the second one of us starts popping civvy ships. Gabriel nodded. Makes sense. Darwis nodded. 
then handed the datepad over to him. Program these codes into your ship nav beacon. No legit pirate will touch you. And if someone does, broadcast to a channel I bookmarked there. They'll wish they hadn't, Darwis said, slamming back the last of his drink. Oh, and the codes will only work for you. So no need ideas about sending the code to your buddies. Okay. Gabriel nodded, standing up and clasping Darwis by the wrist. Thank you. Best of luck, Darwis, he said. You too, Gabe. Keep the bottle. Hours later, Darwis stepped out of the shower in the captain's quarters, drying himself and wrapping a towel around himself. He poured a drink for himself and slammed it back before sitting down on the edge of his bed. He hunched over and took a shuddering breath before it overtook him, a sob escaping as he buried his face in his hands. The sobbing went on for several minutes before he reached into a drawer beside his bed, pulling a picture of another man and two kids. They were smiling, happy, and full of life. I got them, babe, he said, touching the man's face. I got them for you. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 859. Story number one. The Featherwright Incident, written by C-SPAN. People sometimes say that the most dangerous human emotion is anger. They'll tell you stories of humans destroying things in fits of rage, and the consequences that follow. Others will tell you that the most dangerous human emotion is hatred, and tell tales of obsessive humans dedicating their lives to making the object of their hatred absolutely miserable. Yet others will insist that the most dangerous human emotion is actually pride, and describe the inane lengths humans will go to in order to satisfy their own vanity. I am here to tell you they're all wrong, and that the most dangerous human emotion is pure, unadulterated glee. Now, many of you are probably thinking that glee seems like a relatively harmless emotion, and surely I must be exaggerating its impact. And in most cases, you would be right. Under normal circumstances, human glee is a wonderful emotion. But I'm not talking about normal human glee. I'm talking about the glee of a human engineer, which is the most frightening thing that I have ever encountered. Because when a human engineer is gleeful, it means that something they built started to work. And that is absolutely terrifying. Gather round, my new friends, and let me tell you a tale of the Featherright Incident. Now, I'm sure you've all heard of the Featherright Incident before but likely through either a history textbook or tales so distorted by the retelling that they're more fiction than fact. But I was there. My friends, I was on the Featherite, and my tale is the truth. The incident, funny enough, was started partially by me. I was the security officer on board the Featherite at the time, in part due to my level-headedness during a crisis but mostly because I massed twice as much as the next largest crewmate 
and was capable of physically restraining anyone else on board. Not that I needed to. Most incidents about the Featherite were exactly what you would expect aboard a long-haul freighter. Drunken brawls and lovers' quarrels. I know the concept of a long-haul freighter doesn't really exist anymore. But back then, you needed someone to keep the peace on journeys that could last months, if not years. Anyways, my role in the incident began with a call down to Engineering Bay to check on a certain Joan Matrovsky. Yes, that Joan Matrovsky. She was just a crew member at the time, of course, and I was called down because she was making strange noises and scaring some of the more sensitive engineers. When I arrived in engineering, she seemed to be reaching the end of a fit that had overtaken her, and I was barely certain that she was laughing. I gently ushered her to the side and asked what was going on. She explained that a major breakthrough had occurred in a project that she had been working on, and that she was simply happy that she had made progress. She then asked to speak to the captain. The look on her face, as some of you have doubtless already guessed, was pure glee. I should have stopped her. I should have known that the slightly manic grin she wore was a harbinger of a great and terrible events that were to come. I should have congratulated her on her achievement, denied her to see the captain, and maybe had the ship's doctor check on her for good measure. But I was young, dumb, and overconfident. At the time, I was able to read human emotion well enough to grasp that she was happy, and in my naivete, thought that happy engineer was always a good thing. So I granted a request to see the captain, and tagged along simply because I wanted to hear the conversation the two of them would have. Long haul flights were almost aggressively boring most of the time, and any reason to break my routine was a welcome distraction. Which is why I was on the bridge when Joan excitedly told our captain that she believed she could tweak our engines to get us to our destination much faster. I was really only able to translate Joan's side of the conversation. Our captain communicated through highly directional bursts of pheromones. But the point was, as far as I could tell, that Joan could get us to port in roughly half the time if she had a week to work on the engines. The captain must have agreed, because she thanked them and darted off the bridge wearing a mad grin. I am not able to tell you the mechanics of what she did, and I doubt any of you are capable of understanding anyways. But within a week, Joan's modifications were complete, and she gave the go-ahead to jump. Everyone, Joan included, thought this would simply be a faster jump. So, nobody was sedated at the time. I am one of the select group of incredibly unfortunate individuals that has gone through the Matrovsky jump conscious. It was, and will forever be, the worst pain that I have ever felt in my entire life. Every single nerve ending firing at once results in indescribable agony. I've been shot, stabbed, poisoned, and burnt in my time. But none of that even comes close to the pain of a Matrovsky jump. It was a single second that felt like an eternity. After that brief, 
horrible instant, roughly half of the crew was dead or in need of serious medical attention, and the other half was in serious shock. Fortunately, the ship's doctor was relatively okay, so after a few hours of chaotic triage, everyone on the ship was mostly stable. It was at that point that we began to take our bearings and found out just how magnificently screwed we were. We were well outside the galactic disk, farther than anyone had ever been before. It would take years using the conventional drive technology to reach us, assuming anyone knew where we were. Our only chance of survival was the same experimental drive modification that had gotten us into this mess in the first place. Salvation came in the form of Joe, who was fortunately still alive and capable of coherent thought. If she hadn't been, we all would have died slow deaths of starvation as our food supplies ran out. But fortunately, for everyone still alive on board, she was capable of figuring out what had happened and was able to get us home. Joan needed to decipher what she had done and determine how to tune it so that we would end up in a close vicinity of civilization when we jumped home. She worked like a woman possessed, functioning entirely off catnaps and increasingly stronger stimulants. It took her a month. That month was easily the worst that I had ever spent on any ship. Only a tenuous hope of salvation, as well as the lingering shock of the jump, prevented the crew from tearing each other apart. I think I slept as little as Joan did, trying to maintain some semblance of shipboard discipline. After that terrible month, Joan announced that she was finished, and we prepared to make the return jump. We knew that it would probably kill or cripple some of the remaining crew, but we had no other choice. I imagined it was with a sense of great regret that the captain gave the order to jump. The trip home was worse. On the way out, we were caught entirely off guard by the absolutely agonizing pain, and it obliterated all semblance of rational thought. On the way back, because I was a little better prepared... I retained some awareness of my surroundings. And I saw things, terrible things, beings that lived in the space between dimensions, fractal geometries and quantum effects made flesh, beings whom the laws of reality were little more than suggestions, beings that were not pleased by our intrusion into their home, however brief it may have been. The medical and scientific consensus is that anything anyone sees going through the Matrovsky jump, conscious, is merely hallucinations caused by misfiring synapses. But I know what I saw. Of the 218 crew members who made the second jump, 46 emerged with the faculties intact. All but one reported seeing something out in the dark, if only for an instant. It is my firm belief that there are things in this universe stranger than we can even comprehend, and it is probably best to leave them well enough alone. Anyways, as I am sure you already know, the Featherite emerged in a dangerously low orbit around a highly populated world. The incident, and the incredible technology discovered by it, dominated news cycles for weeks. 
Incidentally, medical workers treated the survivors of the Featherite noticed that the crew members who had been placed in medical comas due to their injuries had sustained no additional damage from the second jump. Further testing confirmed that as long as you were unconscious during the jump, the effects of your psych were minimal. Joan, of course, survived both jumps and proceeded to become tremendously wealthy as a result of her invention. The Featherite incident is remembered as a turning point in interstellar travel and revolutionized transports as we know it. So, in a way, I helped usher in a new era of spaceflight by being an unwitting test pilot for an experimental drive. That's uh, worth a beer or two, right? And remember, if you ever see a gleeful human engineer, run. End of story. Story number two. Diplomatic Chairs, written by Eddie Andy. Diplomatic meetings in the galactic community are never easy. Each species has unique traditions, traits, and requirements. You can't see Teoluchi on any position that contains the numbers four and seven, because those are the cursed numbers. But you don't want them next to the Zhacha, because they fight like skeevels in a bag. Meals are also a pain. You cannot serve meat as some of the prey races faint at the sight of it. However, some species consider it a delicacy, so you need to uh, hide the meat. Some species' food is toxic to others, so they cannot mix. And then there are the almost unlimited combinations of sauces and other things to be wary of. Cutlery is also a pain. Just one meal takes over eight months of planning. It gets even worse at high council meetings. You can't use a circular table because the Jolner finds circles insulting to be around as there are no defined end, indicating the meeting should go on forever. But that means that certain seats need to be considered so specific species and empires don't feel subbed. Seats. Don't even get me started on seats, specific styles, sizes, materials, and even colors. It's insane. Then there's the issue of if the diplomat is bigger or smaller than expected. It was a nightmare. I say was because of you humans, you blasted humans, and your, uh, what do you call them, sacks of diplomatic communication... Those things saved us so much effort. Just big fabric or plastic sacks full of soft beads. Any species could use them. And even better, the only thing that matters is the size. You can change anything else without much trouble. We've had to start limiting the use of them as people want to use them for personal use. Can you imagine diplomatic thrones being used as common sitting implements? What a pointless waste. Not to mention, having such universal chairs is so useful because no one feels left out. Admittedly, when the Ulian ambassador had to be helped out of his chair, was funny. Now, can we sort out an order of 40 of the medium-sized ones and uh, 20 large? What was the slang that you used? Oh, beanbag. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 860 Story number one The Ultimate Low Ground 
written by X. Weiler. The flagship Crum Homogeny Armada orbited Earth amid the wreckage of what was left of the meager UN Space Defense Force. Aboard was a small delegation from the United Nations of Humanity, summoned to accept the terms of humanity's surrender to the hegemony. The war had been swift as would have been expected. Humanity was a young upstart, only recently having become known to the galaxy at large. Their fate had been a foregone conclusion. The only question had been which nearby power would conquer them and turn them into a vassal state. Sure, there was the Galactic League which was founded to foster peace between races and bring justice for those too weak to defend themselves. But everybody present, including the League observers, knew that the only actual peace was that which it was enforced by particle cannons and fusion warheads, things that the League was sorely lacking. Besides making self-aggrandizing speeches about cooperation and unity, the observers' only real purpose here was to rubber stamp the standard demands of surrender that the crumb hegemony would present and which the United Nations of Humanity would accept. And with their species now held, it was time for the demands. The Supreme Commander Verzel of the Fleet of Crumb, the Supreme Commander Verzel of the First Fleet of Crumb, stood up from his chair in the middle of the long side of the conference table. To his left and right sat his admirals and senior captains. At one end of the table sat two League observers. Opposite the Supreme Commander Verzel sat Andrew Morrison, the head ambassador of the UNH and his delegation. The Supreme Commander spoke. As the voice of authority of the Crumb Hegemony, I, the Supreme Commander of the First Fleet of Crumb, demand that the United Nations of Humanity immediately ceased all hostilities against the Crumb Hegemony, submit unconditionally, and be forevermore bound to the authority of the Crumb Hegemony. Does the United Nations of Humanity accept just mercy of the Crumb Hegemony in these terms of surrender? Ambassador Morrison glanced to his right at General Terence Hall, who nodded curtly. Then he glanced to his left at General Yang Chao, who also nodded. Ambassador Morrison stood up to meet the Supreme Commander Verson head to head. He squared his shoulders and cleared his throat for effect. The United Nations of Humanity do not accept these terms, or any terms of surrender. There was a silence as quiet as that of the deepest space as Morrison and Verzel stared at each other. You are a young race. Perhaps you do not understand your situation. The Supreme Commander gestured at the large windows with his hand. Outside was Earth, and the glimmer from the thousands of pieces of wreckage catching the rays of sun as they spun. Your fleets have been destroyed. They are nothing but twisted pieces of metal. You have nothing that can hope to resist our ships. With nothing more than the mere touch of a button, I could rain fire on your cities and turn your surface of your planet to glass. Yes, you could. Morrison nodded in agreement. He paused for a second, then looked at Verzel in the eye. Will you? It wasn't a question. It was a challenge. What? 
the Supreme Commander was caught off guard. It was a simple question, one I would hope someone of your stature would be able to answer. Will you? Morrison enunciated those two words individually with emphasis. One half of Versal's mind was caught up in an absolute rage that was bubbling up as an almost casual insult towards him. The other half was caught up in the absolute insolence of these monkeys even daring to question his answer would be anything other than empathic yes that he was ready to prove it. Both of these trains of thought collided and log-jammed his mouth and he was simply left agape. Ambassador Morrison took the advantage of this. Allow me to answer for you. This isn't about raw materials. You would just go mine an empty star system without risking trillions of credits in military hardware. This isn't about extermination. If it was, you wouldn't even have given us a choice in the first place. This isn't about glory. For there is none to be had in wanton slaughter of civilians. And I believe even the League, as spineless and toothless as it is, would have a thing or two to see about outright genocide. Morrison glanced at the League observers who were looking extremely uncomfortable in their chairs. No, this is about Earth, our people, our built-up economy and industry. If you newcasts from orbit, you destroy the only thing you stand to gain from this. So, I ask again, Morrison Gladversal. Will you, will you cross the only real red line the League has? Will you destroy the very thing you wished to gain? Supreme Commander Versal had no answer. A bluff he hadn't even realized he had been making had been called, and he had nothing to fall back on. Morrison continued, We may be a young species, but we did our best to learn as much about all of you as we could. We've seen pattern repeat over and over in your histories. You invent aircraft, spacecraft, starships. Each new higher ground gives you an easy victory. Because once you dominate the sky above your enemies, a rational opponent surrenders when you can destroy them with impunity. But what if your opponent isn't rational? What if you cannot simply destroy because in doing so would make your own victory moot? You can destroy from the sky, but to control, you need boots on the ground. We may be young, but we know this. None of you have fought a land war in a millennia. We have. We know what hell awaits you if you try and hold Earth by force. Every man and woman in every city, in every village, in every house on the planet will make you pay in blood for every square meter of dirt. Ambassador Morrison pulled a data pad from his pocket of his suit. This contains our terms for the peace treaty between the United Nations of Humanity and the crumb hegemony. It restores our borders back to the pre-war state. The crumb hegemony pays restitution for damages to the civilian infrastructure. And we forget about this unfortunate incident. 
The rest of the human delegation stood up, turned to leave, as Morrison threw it onto the table in front of the Supreme Commander. Aura, you're welcome to try out the alternative, because we hold the ultimate low ground. End of story. Story number two, Hyper Lucid Dreaming, written by Eddie Eddie. Screw you humans! No, seriously, you guys have caused more problems than is possible for any sane species. I mean, uh, the drugs you introduced to the galactic community, the weapons you developed, not even mentioning your endless stupid ideas that has resulted in the need to register, hold my beer as a phrase that can instigate a station or city-wide lockdown. No, uh, the really big problem is your blasted dreams. Let's start at the beginning. Most species run on normal three to four hour cycles. Actually, that's another thing you humans did with your universal measurements. All our science was thrown for a loop. We had to recalculate everything and rewrite all the textbooks. Anyway, most species use three to four hour cycles, four hour active, and then two or three hours recovering. A low energy resting state. You call it meditating. They're still aware of their surroundings and such, but are super sluggish and slow to react. You, however, function on a much longer cycle and do the whole sleep thing. That's a big problem. For a long while, most of the arm you inhabited was considered a no-go zone, because any ship that attempted an FTL jump anywhere near it would either never exit, or the crew would be traumatized and scream about how they normally pretty stable FTL space that we use was filled with madness and insanity. The stories were never the same, even amongst the crew of the same ship. Then you discovered how to communicate with the galactic community, and we explained that you were in a zone that was non-FTL capable. What did you do? You pulled a huge sleeper ship, sending our people sleeping for eons to say, Hi. Sleeping! No one could get anywhere near those sleeper ships, because your damnable humans have the ability to inflict your dreams upon FTL space. So, uh... Even one sleeping human can destabilize FTL travel in an entire system. But an entire ship worth of you, it took us centuries to work out just what was going on. And even longer to work out how to deal with it. But still, there are issues. Stations with humans on board have to have exclusion zones around them. Your colonies have to be clearly marked and warning buoys placed in space around them. You, as a species, have been outlawed as a weapon as all it would take is one human having a doze aboard an outpost to obliterate an army of approaching an FTL. And your reaction to this was to shrug and explain that you can't control your dreams, that you never intended to hurt anyone. If you never wanted to hurt anyone, why do you dream of dark Monsters stalking corridors when no one can run properly. Or of impossible worlds where doors only open to infinite different horrific tortures. 
You humans are insane. I'll not be having any of you aboard my ship. Captain the crux of the Lazard Federation's final speech before entering FTL, after refusing aid a human colony. The ship was never recovered. A single lifeboat was recovered with a few crew members aboard, all claiming that the ship had been consumed by trillions of screaming creatures, each with a face like a tortured infant. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 861 Story number one. Where is the Anti-Monitor? Why do you need him? Written by Admiral Marsupial 3 Those of us who know of, can see, or travel to other parts of the multiverse know three things to be true. Number one, fuck is the most versatile word ever created in any universe ever. Number two, no matter what universe they are in, humans are fecking insane. Number three, the non-human inhabitants of Universe 976KDD-94 are the most sympathized with poor unlucky frickers in the entire multiverse. Point three was directly related to point two. Humans are the most insane species in almost every universe they inhabit, and in a few that they don't. That is, more due to some event making the humans more reserved rather than the craziness of the more insane race. These universes are collectively known as Lucky Feckers. In most of them, the humans lack self-preservation or acceptance of the limits of the laws of physics can make things, um, interesting. Across the multiverse, they've come up with every possible perversion of nature, every slap in the face of God, and every way of saying feck you to people that say you can't do that. In Universe 37 GMY875, they were the first in all the multiverse to actually go faster than the speed of light. Not warping space, not using wormholes, hyperspace, substance, or any other sort of space. They actually broke the light barrier. They then used the technology to make projectiles that they could fire at their enemies. It ended about as well as you probably guessed. In Universe 9865GD42, they solved subatomic reconstruction, a technology that could usher in a post-scarcity society for everyone and turn the universe into a paradise. The first thing they did was make 100 plus meter tall atomic lizards. In Universe 13738ET44, the otherwise known as the stickiest universe, Rule 34 became the dominant art form of the galaxy. If you are one of the lucky, unlucky, freaking perverted bastards who are legally allowed to view this universe, we recommend thoroughly sterilizing your viewer before use. In Universe 48368TSU5, the humans developed the psychic ability where their thoughts were projected to everyone around them. This was known as the universe where everyone cried themselves to sleep. This sort of story was repeated across billions of universes. If you didn't want humans to do something, you didn't tell them it was dangerous. You didn't tell them that it was inefficient. You definitely didn't tell them that they could do it. In fact, 
and many of the smarter universes. These three rules were in a literal handbook of how to get humans to do something. No, you tried to convince them that it was actually really boring and hoped, against all hope, that they didn't work out that you were full of shit. And there was poor Universe 976 KDD 94. In this universe, the humans did it all. Atomic lizards, an entire Rule 34 galaxy with atomic lizards doing things that are best avoided if you don't want to be compelled to pour strong acid into your eyes. Weapons that would be intergalactic crimes anywhere else. They somehow managed to make the color red actually make things go faster, as well as an almost infinite amount of other fecking insane bollocks that resulted in the universe renaming the laws of physics to those bullcrap suggestions that don't apply to those fecking crazy space lemurs for some reason. They actually did that. There was a ceremony for the renaming and everything. Most of the humans watched the ceremony with a tear in their eye and pride in their hearts. Now, of course, because the universe is a cruel fecking bitch that hates us all, they discovered that they weren't the only universe and how to cross over. Universe 1 GHYF408 was the first to be visited. Unfortunately, they didn't have humans and were actually thrilled to meet the new exciting friends. After the initial meeting and exchanging of history and culture, they took one for the team, promptly decided that death was preferable to opening further relations, and destroyed their own universe, and destroyed their own universe by triggering a second Big Bang. But not before creating billions of falsified scientific documents and test results to convince the humans that there were only two universes. They were recognized as heroes to the rest of us, apart from Hakafatel from the Wushitain race. He was known officially throughout the multiverse as the dumbest fecking moron to ever exist, and the fecker who probably doomed us all. In all the billions of scientific documents that had been given to the humans to convince them of the two-universe theory, was a summary of one experiment written by Hackerfatal that contained the line, You can't find other universes, it's dangerous to try, and would just consume resources needlessly. They had a working prototype to find the rest of us within six months of reading this report. Luckily, I saw the report before anyone else and immediately bought shares in therapy providers, hazmat suit makers, and manufacturers of lubricant and cleaning wipes. If you must watch the fiery, sperm-filled collapse of your culture and civilization, you may as well do it from the expensive comfy chair in a luxurious mansion, watching it all on a TV the size of the moon. End of story. Story number two. Not a word they'd know. Written by Lords of Duke. The Terran homeworld is, uh, in short, a problematic environment. Beyond the classification as a death world in no fewer than six different grading systems and on the unified galactic sapiency guidelines itself, the place is awful. 
The inhabitants, by their own admission and shared historical records, have experienced a grand total of 11 days without an incident involving groups of more than 50 opposed by a group of equal size. And that is since their ability to keep records began. This places them in the lowest tier of known species as far as global peace schedules persist, beneath every single warmongering race and culture, without exemption. This alone should be an informed point of interest for the following doctrine changes to the galactic policy regarding the expansion efforts beyond the solar reach. Namely, in maintaining the border, revising all contact to conflict encounter diagrams, and embracing the idea that their culture and way of life are not toxins, as originally described by the first contact group listed for their homeworld. They are the singular definition of terror itself. Their young are born into a crucible state, with even the most modern medical sciences engineered in preserving life only allowing a scant 99.87% of the childbearing genders to survive the incident. Again, raising them in the lowest tier listed, this time for survivability of infants through gestational processing, and once more, for all known comparable species. Their youth are encouraged to take part in war simulations, ranging from comparatively benign physical excursions which routinely cripple, maim, or psychologically scar them for life, under the guise of developing excellence in applied endeavors, or simply for bragging rights of dominance against separate unities of education and social groupings. Their adult years compound this through financial and emotional warfare, thinly disguised under the aegis of developing business acumen and standing on a social level with competitive wage earnings and or acquisition of material in excess of need and reliable predictive notions of justification. Zero parts of their species' endeavor into space have failed to produce corpses, often in large amounts further compounding this issue of their declared interest in retaining life and livelihood for all of their species. Despite mounting evidence that safety guidelines could safely and sanely see their culture spread, they continuously opted into the mindset of speed over efficiency and safety. Indeed, this insanity continues to this day. Indirect application of the species' endeavors into the galactic workforce they have an unmatched work ethic. Credit where it is due. They do not experience fatigue at the same rates as the lower 96 percentile of the working class cultures. Nor do they require rest, rehabilitation, or recuperation periods outside of the 97th percentile range. It is not uncommon for them to exceed even their own expectations based on immediate need as opposed to planned progression. See also speed, or efficiency, and safety. Then comes the question of the Terrans in the battle space. We do not currently have a scale which could accurately assess the sheer damage that even one of them could provide into any given conflict with neither preparation nor material available. Time and time again, the introduction of Terrans as a third parties into battle space has caused collapses on both sides of the conflict, with one side often losing too much and the other side unable to continue to hold territory 
or materials seized by the Terrans themselves. They leapfrogged from zone to zone with such efficiency and elegance as to defy any culture to support it for very long, if at all. Except, of course, for the Terrans themselves. They have a knack for obtaining an advantage, even if it requires inventing it themselves, then supporting their positions through superior logistics and supply capabilities, which dovetails into their history as the premier species for war itself. In short, my strongest recommendation is to remove Terrans from all areas which are considered safe and secure followed by bolstering at-risk or even fully discarded space and staffing them with strictly Terran workforce and or soldiery. Even a depopulated death world in the same gradient as their own has been found to be repopulated within as short a period as 20 unified solar cycles, often with 6 to 10 times the number of Terran settlers. So long as a frontier exists, the galaxy is safe from their potential harm as they could not force their attentions, positive and negative, inward to the core worlds. They must be kept at the furthest and perpetual edge, and all that we can hope for is that the idea of the universe is infinite. If it is not, neither will we be. Glory to the Empire! Histiographer Aj Ila, Terransol Prime Monitoring Substation 4 End of story Tales from Outer Space 862 A Quiet Place to Rest Written by Hicks Camber Me? I'm not from around here. Davidson tapped his chip car on the receiver, ordering a drink. I'm just trying to make my way back towards home. No, any ships heading towards the other side. The bartender stood in front of him, cleaning a glass with his questionable rag and setting it beneath the tap. Other side of the system... There's a weekly transit heading out there tomorrow. It'll get as far as 79 outposts before it starts to loop back around. Need to book passage. Davidson smiled and shook his head. Not the other side of the system, sadly. The barkeep nodded solemnly. I got it. You're one of them long haulers, right? Looking to make it across the sector. You're still probably better off taking a weekly and then picking up one of the cryostasis out of 79. I think another one's probably due to leave there in the next month. I'm sure a big guy like you could find gainful employment on S9 in the interim. They're always looking for more labor to help finish out the expansion. He placed a full glass on the bar. Davidson took it and sighed. Oh, I'm looking to get up to the other side of the galaxy. Back home to Earth. The bartender stopped cleaning the latest glass in the line. Earth? Never heard of it. Uh, they're one of those frontier backwaters or something. Davidson took a sip from his glass, his eyes drifting towards the ceiling in recollection. It's the most beautiful planet in the galaxy. It's where my people are from. There's an old, static image from the ancients of my people. One of the earliest images to capture our entire planet at once. And it's just hanging on a sunbeam in the emptiness of space. Shining like this magnificent little blue gemstone. Blue, huh? Cobalt-based surface, huh? Those are tough bastards to eke out a living on. I hear, but, um, uh, I guess they're pretty in their own way. Davidson shook his head. No barkeep. It's about 70% water. Bullcrap. 
Davidson chuckled as the word skipped on the translator. A barkeep who'd never heard of Earth, and had clearly never met a human, had nonetheless picked up the correctly used bullcrap. I'm serious, 70% and green too, on the surface, under the water, everywhere you look. There's life on the planet. And did you know the Galactic Federation has the gall, the freaking nerve, to call Earth a Class 11 death world? He drained his glass in one deep gulp. Yes, they're not wrong, in a manner of speaking. So, uh, how'd you get out this far? You one of them generational ship descendants, hmm? You know, the planet finally achieves spaceflight and manages to build a ship big enough to get themselves off the world and stretch out into the stars. Then, the first generation of folks on the ship die off and their offspring take over. And before they know it, they've all forgotten where they're from or where they're going. No, I'm not a generational ship descendant. I came from Earth. The bartender laughed. Now that's definitely bullshit. Ain't no ship fast enough to cross the expanse in their sapient's lifetime, even with the best cryo. Davidson's smile left his face, and years of weariness returned to the lines around his eyes. His wristwatch chirped at him. Three quick peeps. He glanced down at it and sighed. It's no bullcrap, but I think now's not the best time to explain. He tossed the chip card across the bar. That's uh, for the damages. The bartender caught the card as it slid off the other end and looked back up. What damages? You only had one drink. A flash of red ripped through the bar tearing chunks of the table and chairs off before slamming into Davidson's chest. He fell to the floor, landing hard on his back. Three vaguely mantis-like creatures leapt over the bar, ignoring the frantic shouts of the bartender, and landed beside Davidson's still form. His eyes were open, but motionless. I think that did it. Look, there's no life in his eyes. I hear you can always see life in their eyes. Clicking in agreement, the trio threw their weapons across their backs and strapped them tight. Davidson lunged upwards, grabbed an arm of the nearest and yanked it down while throwing his leg up into its thorax. With a sickening crunch, the arm came free, spraying ickle across the other two. Another moment later, Davidson had his hands on the weapon still strapped to the creature and had fired two precise shots to the remaining pair. He tossed the still-screaming first one aside like a ragdoll, silencing it at the bulkhead. I think I'll have another drink, if you don't mind, and uh, don't forget the damages. The bartender stood in shock. Less than 60 seconds had passed since the wristwatch had beeped an alert, and now his bar was half-destroyed. Three men to die were dead or dying, and an alien from the other side of the galaxy was standing there like it was all a mundane thing, asking for a second drink. What the hell are you? Human from Earth. Please, barkeep, ring up the value of the bar and tap the chip card. I said I'd pay for the damages, and I meant it. The bartender found his senses and did as instructed. Those man and I all have guild sigils. They're bounty hunters. You got a bounty on you? I do. Feeling lucky. The chip cop chimed in successive transaction. Well, 
This chip card shows a remaining balance I ain't never imagined before, so I feel like my luck's about reached its limit. He set another glass down on the half-ruined tabletop. Bartenders are the smartest profession. I've always believed that. Davidson raised his glass and nodded before taking another drink. The bartender tapped on a nearby panel, summoning up the cleaning drones to clear away the mess. A highly computerized voice spoke up. Greetings, proprietor. Recent transaction activities indicate you may qualify for platinum-level nanite enhanced remodeling and restoration. Why settle for good enough when you could have the very best? The bartender looked puzzled. The how? he pondered aloud. Ah, uh, that's probably me and my card. Uh, sorry. Davidson leaned towards the panel and spoke as clearly as he could through a rapidly metabolizing third drink. Nanite restoration approved. Charged to Davidson 1337N00 beta. The panel glowed green for a moment, then went dark. Within seconds, a pale gray haze filled the bar. The bartender watched in a mix of fear and awe as the fragments of his establishment were seamlessly knitted back together by what he assumed were the repair nanites. Shortly afterwards, he stood in a clean, shining bar that looked just like it had within the day he opened it. Davidson sat at the bar, scratching his teeth. God, I hate these new generations of nanites. They don't have any concept of boundaries. My teeth aren't part of the bar. They're just in the bar. The bartender slid the chip card back across to Davidson. Look, uh, I appreciate you doing that and for offering to pay for the damages before they even happened. Uh, what the hell is going on here? There's a bounty on my head. The best and brightest and deadliest the guild has to offer has been hunting me down for years now. It's a little arms race we have going, me and them. An arms race between a single sapient and the whole PHG. How's that work? They keep trying to kill me, I keep trying to survive them. We both develop better tactics and technologies in the process. He took another swig of his drink. Oh, and it makes me rich as hell too. Uh, any of the hunters has to pay a fee to get access to the contract. So, um, as more hunters fail to kill me, the more valuable the contract on my head becomes. Wait, how does that make you rich? They're buying into the contract, and the person who put out the contract can recoup a percentage of the buy-ins, even beyond their own initial investment. Wait, the person who put out the contract? You put out the contract on yourself? Uh, yep. Yeah. Why the hell would you do a thing like that? Same reason I want to go back to Earth. The hell does that mean? Davidson smiled. Well, um, you know how I mentioned that the Galactic Federation called my little gem of a homeworld a Class 11 death world? I do. Until shortly afterwards, that was the most unbelievable thing of the evening. Well, uh, turns out that they weren't wrong about it. Just not in the way that I think any of my people were really expecting. See, uh, there are all kinds of stuff on Earth that'll kill a human. Hell, our parent star, so she puts out ionizing radiation all day long. And that rips through our DNA, causing mutations that, uh, in the right collection of random events, 
gives us cancer and kills us. We've got viruses aplenty, all trying their damnedest to murder every single one of us. We've got native flora and fauna that try to kill us on the regular. Mountain cedar, you ever heard of it? It's a tree. It just stands there drinking up photons and water and carbon dioxide, churning out pollution that makes us wish that we were dead. Hell, we got fecking Australia. As though somehow our little planet decided we needed a hard-mode version of wildlife. Everything, and I mean everything, on that planet of ours wants to, and sometimes can, kill all of us. He stared at the bottom of his glass. I never thought I'd miss living under the constant threat of death until I came out here into the black. Turns out that constant threat of death is the only real spice of life. Out here? Nothing. There's no ionizing radiation out here. No human being will ever die of cancer sailing between the stars. We're just immune. Viruses? How? My white blood cells could probably wreck an entire planetary ecosystem if they weren't safely locked inside me. And wildlife? He gestured over his shoulder to the last fading remnants of the mantonite corpses as the nanites finished dismantling them. Nothing out here can get us, it seems. He stared at the bottom of his glass a little longer. The bartender knew his tradecraft well enough to let him sit in silence. That's why I put the contract out myself. I am so tired. I've been alive for way too long. No human was ever supposed to be alive for this long. Not even close. So, I'll either get home and die of old age, like I always dreamed, or I'll die trying to get there. But I am so tired. Any form of death will be like finally going to sleep of the longest day of my life. The bartender quietly replaced the empty glass with another full one. So why stop those hunters then? Why not just let them kill you? Davidson glared for a moment, and the bartender felt an ancient chill run down his spine. An old, genetic memory of a time long past when predators were something his own species had to fear. Because, barkeep, I may want to die, but I'm not going to die to three fucking cockroaches unless they're earth cockroaches. He drained the last of the drink and waved off the incoming refill. I see, said the bartender. Do you mind if I ask how long you've been alive? Three rotations. That's, um... Hold on. If you're gonna do the math, I'll save you the trouble. I was there, me, personally, at the fall of the Goddamn Empire. I watched as the Andros supernova ripped apart the entire Andrasi homeworld. I was there at the end of the Terran Empire. I'm from what you know as ancient history. I was halfway across the galaxy before your species even figured out the wheel, let alone now when you have an orbital platform around Class Three Pulsar. He breathed a ragged breath as the reality of it settled on him, like a weight that he'd almost grown numb to. I am tired, Barkeeper. 
I am looking for the same thing every one of my people ultimately searches for. A quiet place to rest. Davidson tapped the chip card on the reader one more time, stood up, and left the bar just as the latest shift of laborers began to trickle in. He moved through the corridors towards the docking bays, idly glancing at the departure screens. Maybe one of these ships was going towards the galactic core. Moving forward would at least get him closer to home, closer to rest. Men of Story Tales from Outer Space 863 Clerical Error Written by C-SPAN I'm pretty sure it wasn't my fault that I died. The fact that I was able to remember my death at all was remarkable. Dying usually messes with your memory a good bit. I've known a couple people who have lost weeks and heard horror stories of those that have lost whole chunks of their lives. I was lucky and that I usually remembered right up until the moment of my death. This time around, I distinctly remembered a bright flash from my left before the darkness, presumably a result of something detonating nearby and with enough force to vaporize me. Which honestly wasn't the worst. Vaporization meant the corp wouldn't be able to repair my body, and a new one would have to be grown from scratch. Technically, according to the contract, I should have a clone floating in a vat somewhere for them to dump my consciousness into the instant I died. But clones are expensive to just keep sitting around, so normally they just kept a copy of your brain in some nutrient broth and only start to grow the clone after you die. Which, um... Means your brain in a jar for three months, with only sims to keep you from losing your mind. It sucks. A lot. At least I wouldn't have had to pay for the privilege, since it wasn't my fault this time. Small blessings, I suppose. I let out a small sigh of relief at that thought. Wait a second. I just breathed. Brains in jars don't have lungs, and the company provided sims aren't nearly good enough to emulate breathing. Which could only mean that I was in an actual body. A goddamn miracle as far as I was concerned. It meant that the ILF risk management algorithms actually did what they were supposed to do for once. Don't get me wrong, the oh-so-creatively named Interstellar Logistics Facilitators weren't actually all that bad as far as corpse go. But like all corpse, their primary focus was money which always results in as many corners cut as possible. One of those corners was usually clone storage for workers, but not today, apparently. Okay, no more sense in putting it off any longer. I was going to have to open my eyes. Whenever you get dumped into a brand new body, automatic functions kick in instinctually, which is great if you don't want to asphyxiate a minute and a half after conscious transfer. But uh, exerting voluntary control over your brand new body was a whole other ball game and involved a lot of strenuous effort and a great deal of pain. The first step of which involved opening my eyes for the first time. Okay, here we go. Opening eyes in three, two, one. Ow! The room you woke up into was always dim, but even the weak light was enough to render me entirely blind 
as my eyes frantically tried to dilate for the first time ever. A soft sigh of pain escaped my lips, because apparently groans of agony were beyond my current capabilities. My eyes finally adjusted enough that I was able to tell that I was looking at a ceiling, so um, that's nice. Eyes, check. Now on to the rest. Raising my arm was a good test of my control over large muscle groups without being as daunting as, say, uh, sitting up. That would come later. For now, the arm. I generally don't make a habit of dying, but it's happened a few times before, and I don't remember raising my arm being this difficult. It takes me what feels like hours, but it's probably about five minutes to shakily raise my arm into view. Which was when I noticed that the skin on the arm wasn't mine. I'm as pale as feck, having apparently descended from either cave-dwelling night creatures or Irish people. The fact that my new body has been sitting in a vat in the dark for God knows how long should have left my skin looking like that of a recently reanimated corpse. Which, in a sense, I was. But the skin on this arm, my arm was brown. Okay, don't panic. Maybe they've come up with a new growth regimen that resulted in my tanning for the first time in my entire life. But no, my hand looks different. And there's a lot more hair on my forearm than I don't remember having. It's around this time that my proprioceptive sense oh so helpfully informs me that the slight weight I've felt in my chest since I was a teenager is gone and that there is a something unfamiliar between my legs. It seems like I died a woman and woke up as a man. I was in the wrong body. More importantly, I was in the wrong brain. From what I've heard, being stuck in the wrong body sucks a lot, but it isn't fatal. Being stuck in the wrong brain is. The science escapes me at the moment, but you can't just stick an old consciousness into any brain you like. All the little fiddly bits of grey matter don't quite line up, and that leads to a serious complications. You're fine at first, but things start to break down within hours. If I couldn't fix this soon, I'd be at best incredibly brain damaged, and at worst, dead for good. Okay, no more time to mess around, slowly acclimating to my body. I had to get up, I had to get out of here, and I had to fix my brain before it turned to sludge. Adrenaline is a wonderful motivator, and I was able to sit up much more quickly than I was able to raise my arm, although with a great deal more pain. I managed to spin around, so I was sitting with my legs dangling off the edge of the bed and prepared to stand up. It was at this point that I was confronted with a large mirror. For some reason, waking up alone in a room with a mirror is the best way to acclimate to your new body. Something about seeing yourself in the mirror helps you ground yourself, or whatever. Normally, looking in the mirror and seeing that I was fine helped calm me down after an accident killed me. But um, not this time. The guy looking back at me in the mirror was entirely average. Dark hair, dark eyes, brown skin, average height. Nothing that would cause me to look at him twice if we passed each other on the street. The only remarkable thing about him was that I was rattling around inside his brain instead of him. Looking at the man in the mirror, seeing him instantly mimic my movements, his movements sent a wave of nausea crashing through me. 
This body was wrong. Oh, it seemed like a perfectly acceptable body, all things considered, but it wasn't mine, and I hated it. I needed to get out. It was at this point that I remembered that all I needed to do was call for help. The wake-up rooms were monitored in case something went wrong. Well, something had definitely gone wrong. I should have realized this sooner, but in my defense, I just died like 20 minutes ago and wasn't exactly at my best. I tried to say, help, but it came out more as a... A couple of attempts later, and I could manage something that was definitely help. Although the words felt strange and unfamiliar in my mouth, and I had to enunciate really carefully. I'm not sure if this guy didn't speak English normally, or if my control over his vocal cords kind of sucked. A small indicator light blinked on, and an accentless female voice chimed in above. What seems to be the problem, Mr. Newman? Okay, here goes. I had to convince this monitoring bot that I was not, in fact, Mr. Newman. This could be difficult, but uh, let's start simple. I'm not Mr. Newman. My name is Rachel Amy Patel, and I died in an accident that occurred while I was working on Elevator 13. I said all of this slowly and carefully, trying not to trip over my own suddenly unfamiliar tongue. The light blinked once, and there was a brief silence. Understood, Miss Patel. Uh, could you please state your employee identification number so that we can confirm your identity? Well, that was easy. The voice was male now and had a very slight lisp, so probably a real-life person. I was apparently important enough to be escalated. Anyways, my ID. I really hoped my memory wasn't fried enough to forget it, because I would be screwed if I couldn't remember. My ID is 626-115940395211290. I cannot for the life of me determine why the numbers needed to be 19 digits long. I looked it up once, and the ILF has only about 3 billion people working for it ever. So, there's no reason they should be more than like 10 digits. I have no idea what any of the numbers correspond to either. Is this fact important? No. It's distracting me from the fact that the intercom has been silent for a worrying amount of time. Yes, just as my nervousness was about to crest into full-blown panic, the intercom came back on. My apologies, Miss Patel. There appears to have been a clerical error on our end, uh... We accidentally swapped you with Mr. Newman. Please stand by to be killed and reinstated into your proper body, free of charge. Well, uh, that was ominous, but it made a certain degree of sense. There was most likely an equally panicking Mr. Newman trapped in my body, and swapping back as quickly as possible was vital. The easiest way would be to kill us both at the same time and let the automated revival process stop us back into the correct bodies. Of course... The guy on the intercom could have phrased it a bit more nicely, but uh, whatever. I hope whatever kills me does it quick. There was a click and a slight hissing sound. I looked around and saw some vents had opened around the room. The indicator light blinking, and the intercom guy was back. Miss Patel, if you could please lie down on the bed and breathe slowly and deeply. This will be over soon. 
We're flooding the room with nitrogen. You'll be dead in a few minutes. There won't be any pain. You'll just begin to feel tired and fall asleep. Don't try and fight it. This guy could really stand to work on his bedside manner, but there was no point in being ordinary about it. I did as he asked and felt myself growing drowsy. And for the second time in the past 30 minutes, I died. Waking up in the correct body was a lot easier than waking up in the wrong one. The pervasive feeling of wrongness was gone. I was me again. Plus, Mr. Newman had done a lot of the heavy lifting when it came to moving my limbs for the first time ever. So, there was a lot less pain than usual. I hoped he was having an easier wake-up too. Maybe I should try and meet up with him at some point. We could commiserate. I sat up and allowed myself a good five minutes of staring at myself in the mirror. Having my body look and feel the way it should, as well as no longer being in immediate danger of dying, was giving me some truly amazing feelings. But all good things must come to an end, and I stood up and began to walk to the door on shaky legs. It was time to get back to work. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 864 On the Souls of Humanity or Seriously, Do Not Touch Written by Tiny Bard Inside an interrogation chamber, deep within one of the great war machines of the Zeth fleet, a single human sat tied to a chair. He was bare-chested, and the interrogator could see the scars that lined every inch of his body. These faint white lines were crossed and covered by more recent wounds, cuts, bruises, and burns inflicted by the interrogator's own hand. The interrogator had long since sacrificed his own name to the Zith god of torture and war. In return, he had been granted insight into the minds of those around him, so long as he inflicted pain enough upon them. The human was now ready, his mind and soul open to the interrogator. The interrogator's superiors wished to know what gifts the pantheon of humanity granted its soldiers, what rights were demanded of them, and how to counteract them. The interrogator stepped in front of the human, careful to make his steps ring ominously upon the metal floor. He leaned close to the human's face and smiled as the human forced a single eye open, while the other remained shut due to swelling. The interrogator raised a single, long finger to his lipless mouth and smiled. The expression he knew to be unnerving as a snarl. Of course, the human couldn't speak even if he wished to, as his mouth was gagged. Now was not the time for the glorious song of his screams to ring out. The interrogator needed to concentrate. The interrogator reached out with his mind, feeding towards the connections wrought in the soul of his victim from the pain inflicted. He found the human soul peaceably, yet veritably glowed with power. This was a powerfully gifted soldier indeed. The interrogator thought the glow of the soul rivaled that of the commander of this great vessel. The human stiffened as he felt the tendrils of the interrogator's power driving deeper and deeper into his soul. The interrogator began to see his thoughts and let the experience wash into him. This 
would be the first route into the depths of the human soul. Crewman Jacobson had been warned during his training that some of the Zathorturers were telepaths. Telepathy was rare enough amongst the Terran military forces that he had not been able to attend the resistance training, even though he had volunteered for it. Instead, he had to rely solely on the theoretical training that he'd been given. The interrogator felt himself pull out of the human's mind slightly at the strange thought. Voluntarily subjecting oneself to telepathic invasion, not even the most bloodthirsty or fanatical members of the Zith Pantheon demanded such a sacrifice. Telepathic invasion was dangerous to the victim. It could often lead to a lifelong impairment of the mind and body. The gods of humanity must be vile indeed. The interrogator let the thoughts of the human flow over him once more. Jacobson thought back to the lecture that he had attended in the academy. The balding man in a hobbit chair had spoken in depth about his experience with the telepath. No matter how strong you are mentally, a telepath is going to get into your head somehow, the man said. Most human telepaths are adherent to Gaia. The interrogator made a mental note of the name before allowing the thought to wash over him again. But there are a fair amount of mutants who possess the ability, not to mention the Zith. There seem to be a larger number of telepaths amongst them than among humanity, leading us to think that they have either bred selectively for the trait, or their pantheon is freer with the gift than Gaia is. The interrogator held the thoughts in place, freezing the human's mind. He reached over to the table nearby and scribbled a note. The first name of the deity found in the subject's mind was Gaia. The domain and nature of this deity is yet unknown. It is not yet clear if this Gaia is the name of a particular god or the human name for their own pantheon. Further study will be required. Notably, the human do not seem to have a large number of telepaths. This Gaia seems to hold the gift in reserve for the devout. Additionally, as a species it seems that genetic mutation is common possibly even accepted amongst the species. This may indicate a fleshcrafted deity holds primary sway over the pantheon. I shall delve deeper to see if this human's mind holds more answers. The interrogator let the human's mind flow forward, nudging slightly in the direction of the Gaia. Jacobson wasn't particularly devout in worship of Gaia. What? His mother would have been mortified to see how rarely he attended service anymore. But he hardly had time for worship, especially with the war and everything. He promised himself that he would go back to attending temple if he got out of this. He knew that Gaia wasn't particularly fond of war, especially amongst her children. But he also knew that she understood the necessity with the Zith threatening all of humanity. The interrogator once again froze the human's mind and leaned away, disturbed. This human had a soul as powerful as the most devout, and yet he rarely attended any worship whatsoever. The interrogator made another note. The human mind holds very little devotion to the Gaia, but I have been unable to locate any other name of a deity despite turning the subject's mind towards worship in general. 
Perhaps the pantheon of humanity hides itself from the knowledge of captured soldiers to keep the pantheon of Zith from discovering their identities and weaknesses. Still, such an expungement should have weakened the gifts the soldier had received and left obvious holes in his mind. I shall need to delve deeper into the fabric of his soul to find the scars. May Holy Creth guide me. Jacobson felt the attention of the interrogator return. Those blips were strange and uncomfortable, but he recognized brain freeze from the lectures. Instead of following along Jacobson's train of thought again, the interrogator pushed down beneath. It felt to Jacobson like hot knives digging into every inch of him, pushing deeper and deeper until they were cutting into something beyond his body. Jacobson understood instinctively that the interrogator was digging into his very soul. He writhed and screamed into his gag, but was unable to do anything more than endure as the interrogator tore him apart. The interrogator held in the essence of the human soul before him. He could see no scars upon it. Indeed, it did not even have the patchwork appearance of one who was beheld by a deity and had the power injected into them. The interrogator's own soul had a great scar running down the center, bisecting him where his name had been held. The interrogator turned to the human soul over before him, disbelieving. No one could have a soul so bright and powerful without being rebuilt by deity. Experimentally, the interrogator tried to excise a small piece of the human soul to examine its composition. He reached out to cut the soul, but found it resisted far more than he would have expected. He pressed harder, attempting to tear a chunk of the soul off, but found the soul entirely immutable. The interrogator could examine it, even peer into it, but he could not alter it, no matter how hard he pressed. The interrogator was baffled. Not even the strongest of soul would have completely rebuffed his greatest efforts. Frustrated, the interrogator peered as deeply as he could into this inexplicable soul. There was something there, something he had not seen before, some seed of power. The interrogator found himself standing in a small clearing in a dense forest. Yellow sunlight fell around him. Some avian creatures sang in the distance. The interrogator saw a human female standing in the middle of the clearing. She was perhaps a head shorter than the human the interrogator had just been examining, with golden hair that fell to the middle of her back. The interrogator stepped forward cautiously. This experience was reminiscent when the interrogator had sacrificed his name to Kreth. But no Zetheji would take the form of a human. As the interrogator got closer to this mysterious human, he could see eternity in her eyes. And he knew this was no mortal. This was a member of the human pantheon. Somehow, the human was linked directly to the very essence of the human's deity. The interrogator tried to take a step back, but found himself bound by vines that had wrapped around his limbs. The deity stepped forward towards the interrogator, a look of deep sorrow on her face. I am Gaia. The interrogator felt the raw power in the name as she spoke it. You are a child of Kreth, 
of the Zespantheon, she continued, walking slowly around him. Your pantheon has declared me and my children anathema, and now seeks our utter destruction. The interrogator could not even move to speak, but he felt her see the confirmation in his mind. The interrogator had been present when the High Prophet had received the vision from the entire pantheon, igniting the holy war against the humans. Gaia stepped up in front of the interrogator, fixing him in her eternal gaze. I despise war, she said, sadly. I am the mother. I represent life. That is my domain. The interrogator could see the history of the humans in her eyes as she spoke. I've been the lone member of the human pantheon since they discovered the ability to travel faster than night. I was the first, and I have the last. Before they even left my cradle, my children had perfected the art of war. They invented and turned terrible weapons on themselves. My children are wild. They seek freedom above all else and want not to be bound. They destroyed the budding deities that they would have come to rule them. My children would have destroyed themselves if I had not spoken to them. I granted them the ability to travel faster that night and begged them to go out amongst the stars and live. The interrogator could see the deaths of the primordial human deities as the humans turned terrible weapons upon them and rent them asunder. He could see this Gaia kneeling and pleading before the leaders of humanity to not destroy themselves. Gaia turned away from the interrogator as tears welled up in her eyes. I am not like your pantheon, she said, wiping her eyes and turning back to meet his gaze. I do not directly interfere with my children's souls. But then, even referring to them as my children marks me as different from your gods, doesn't it? The interrogator gritted his teeth. This was true. The pantheon of Zith considered the Zith useful tools, perhaps valuable servants to the more kindly. As far as the interrogator knew, none of the Zith pantheon took a paternal role for his species. It was an honor to be of use to the pantheon. The souls of the most valuable servants were taken and used to enhance the next generation of Zith. The interrogator's own enhanced soul was taken from one of these exalted ones. As I said, my domain is life and the natural world, Gaia continued. I cannot grant the same gifts that your pantheon grants for power in war. Gaia turned and began to walk away from the interrogator as vines began to constrict around him. I have instead granted each and every one of my children a seed of my power. The seed makes their souls immutable to all outside influence and grants them potential. The way Gaia said that last word made it echo in the interrogator's mind, much like Gaia's name had when she spoke it. My children can adapt to any situation, changing and manipulating their own souls to grant themselves power. Often, like so many other things, they have turned this ability upon themselves. 
but your gods have given them a threat against which they can unite. Gaia wrapped her arms around herself in a posture that spoke of great fear. I have glimpsed their potential. She turned back to the interrogator. Sadness etched into her face. I knew this potential when I first granted them this gift. And now you have unleashed it upon yourselves. The vines grew tighter, now tearing into his soul, ripping him open, pulling pieces of it off. Take comfort, Gaia said, as darkness overtook Juka, the interrogator. Your species will not be utterly destroyed, but your pantheon will not survive the wrath of my children. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 865 Story number one, found out, written by the bad crafter. So, uh, let me make sure I'm understanding you with pristine clarity, Admiral. You're saying you just killed 17 million humans? The hologram nodded proudly. Affirmative. Our orbital strike eliminated one main civic center, plus several outlying settlements. Their defensive network never even had a chance to come online. The Karathi ambassador pinched the bridge of his snuff and poured a glass of ammonia-enriched liquor before downing it and slamming the glass down on his desktop, shattering it and causing the projection of the Admiral to flinch. We um, should be expecting their surrender any day now. Surely after seeing what casualties we can... The ambassador got him off with a snarl. Admiral, he said, retrieving a second glass and filling it near to the brim. Allow me to explain exactly why you're about to be executed. The hologram blanched. Executed? How dare you? I'll have you know that I'm a veteran of no less than six shot. The fuck up, dead man. The ambassador hit the mute as the hologram went on a tirade slowly but steadily draining his glass in full view of the emitter that was rejecting his image to the soon-to-be dead admiral. Are you done? the ambassador asked after watching the hologram rant and rave in silence. Because honestly, I didn't listen to a word of what you just said. I had you muted so that I could drink in peace, since odds are it'll be the last time I'll be able to do it for a long, long, long time. The hologram seemed to bark in a muted silence. Nah, uh, uh, still muted. Because, honestly, I don't give two Galician Mentai craps about what you have to say. You just executed an unauthorized military strike against civilian targets and the single most dangerous species in the known systems. The ambassador's hand moved across the hollow display, projecting and transmitting the screens to the admiral who was now virtually frothing in the mouth in frustration and rage. Yes, the humans are engaged in a trade war with us. Yes, their fleets are blocking several of our systems. Yes, their technological progress is several generations behind our own, the ambassador said, putting a third glass and sipping. Under any other circumstances, your actions would be lauded and glorious war would be declared for the betterment of the conglomerate. However, you chose to execute this action on humans. On their own world. 
If you'd bothered to do even the most basic and fundamental research on them, you'd understand why you'll be facing public execution. The hologram stilled. Ah, now you're listening, the ambassador said. Then listen well, because you've just doomed twice, possibly three times the number of our people to die that you just killed. The hologram paused before starting to try mouth off again. Hush, the adult's talking, the ambassador said, sending a projection into the infuriated rage. I'm just going to keep talking while you stand there and try and justify your actions, because honestly, I couldn't give an Aldebaran's general pouch about what you have to say. See, Admiral, you committed a cardinal sin. You killed human civilians. The ambassador took a long, slow drink. You see, if you killed human soldiers, they'll simply take it as a challenge. Their soldiers volunteer to be there, knowing they may die. However, humans are notorious for the protective nature over the civilian populations. They take great offense if they are ever targeted. With a swipe of a foreclaw, images began to play across the projection. Every single one an act of humans committing acts of carnage. Euryptes 6, human colony, 1,100 humans dead. The Terran Confederacy launched a military campaign that killed 97,000 Albrexis. Yanari 2, human mining fleet destroyed by Salbatanian privateer. 557 dead. Humans killed 11,345 Solbritarians and decimated over half of their standing fleet. Kandari Prime, 76,000 humans dead or enslaved. The Yonkai Omnicorp doesn't freaking exist anymore. Zaraxan 3B, the Gorth Hive invaded a human colony world. They're still fighting after 11 annals, and the body count stands at... 43,000 humans to 11 billion Goth dead. Lights began to flash in the holograms, and the shadows of the crewmen running in the background could be seen through the projection as the Admiral suddenly began to take on a terrified expression. The Ambassador drank again. Good news, Admiral, the Ambassador said, raising his glass. Looks like you won't be seeing execution on our homeworld after all. The hologram became a chaotic whirl of motion, shadows clashing with shadows and the Admiral drawing his side off and firing at something off camera before two holes appeared in the forehead right before it exploded on camera. The ambassador sipped again as the pounding started at the door. Cortex, message the homeworld, the ambassador said as the door blew open and six human soldiers stormed in. Tell them to surrender. Three shots and a wet noise later, the Omnicam was turned around. A helmeted Terran soldier looked into the camera. Looks like you fucked around and found out. Feed cuts. Sol 3, 17 million humans dead. Kulrothi, 637 billion dead. Homeworld destroyed. Karathi conglomerate seeds 37 systems, 25 colonies, and submits 11 systems and 5 colonies to the Terran Confederacy Protectorate status. End of story. Story number two. My friends, the humans. Written by Provisional Rebel. 
Humanity looked to the stars in wonder when we first found them. They reminded us as much of ourselves. A fledgling race still bound to its own solar system, but well on its way to exploring and thriving on other celestial bodies. They were artists and philosophers, learning and exploring with a childlike wonder. If I could have kept them in that moment forever, I would have been happy. But then, war came. Not to them. They were small and insignificant to the greater galaxy. We were the target. They felt a kinship with us, and we to them. Before our governments had even made a formal defensive pact, we had humans arriving on our worlds from trading vessels. They were wholeheartedly there to protect us, to lay down their lives for those who had shown them the way to the stars. And we welcomed them with open arms, because we are not fighters. We thought that together with humanity, our peaceful races could overcome the odds. And then we learned more of the humans. They were warriors as much as poets, but they brought an almost calm to the tragedy of war. They took prisoners, clothed, and fed them. I witnessed a corpsman charge into the enemy fire to save a comrade, and once more to save an enemy. I saw a soldier throw himself over a child to protect her from a blast. I saw the tide shift and we began to reclaim what had been taken from us. And then our enemy learned of where these soldiers who defended us so fervently had come from. Our enemies had been losing, and in their desperation thought that they could break our back of our resistance. I still understand little of its mechanics, but the weapon they used was a form of mining charge meant to crack open a planet for easier processing. The humans hadn't even considered the possibility when the fleet entered the system. They engaged and fought as they had, but the enemy did not form lines. They charged into the heart of their system and crushed the weapon into their homeworld. I wasn't there when it happened, but nearby on patrol with our own defensive forces when we received the news. We came as fast as we could, about two weeks, and found nothing. The human civilians on their other worlds were gone. All we found was empty settlements and silence amongst the stars. And then the war was over. To our horror, the prisoners the humans had taken were all transported from their barracks. I don't know what became of them. But perhaps that is wishful thinking on my part. Within a cycle, the enemy was gone. We moved into their territory and found only bodies. Some diseased and decayed, some torn to shreds, some scorched with radiation. But all dead. Humanity has changed since that time when they looked to the stars. They do not sing. They do not paint. They do not sculpt. They hang in the inky blackness of their space, consumed with rage. We are the only race that they will hold dialogue with. We are the only race they spare. We have not been assailed now in thirty cycles. No border skirmishes, no wars, no petty squabbles, 
No one dares attack us because they remember the cost. It has been a golden age of peace and prosperity, and I would trade it all to have my friends back. Humanity is gone. The humans are all that's left. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 866 All their saints are demons, written by Lords of Jupe. It's been said that if a human is your ally, you'll run out of enemies fast. It's also said that if a human is your enemy, you run out of time faster. Having seen the double-edged life that they live firsthand, both of those sentiments are trustworthy statements of principle, if not definitive facts. In my tenure as a ship's medical officer, I've borne witness to dozens of different classes of injuries and afflictions, ranging from the benign instances of wayward romances without proper disease or infection screening, all the way to explosive decompression's effect on soft, helpless, fleshy bodies. The space in between fills medical texts and my nightmares. Then I met the humans and decided that I would study a carpentry-based profession. I've become quite good at joining different types of wood, exploring staining techniques, and even incorporating design ideas from multiple cultures into my own unique style. Rather proud of my collection of small, functional containers fashioned after naval vessel storage lockers from the human homeworld's rather impressive antiquity selection. The reason I quit medicine is simple. They don't recognize it as a need so much as an option. Most of them can heal injuries which cripple nearly 99 out of 100 species. They can shrug off conditions which leave others as the tasteful mentions in assorted safety guidelines and maybe comparable honorable pictorials in the after-effects of different accidents and incidents. Their immune system is so robust that they've been known to inflict curative measures on species with soft, porous skins transmitting their own helpful healing cells through their membranes and reducing the already accelerated delay between affliction and recovery into next to null periods. Frankly, finding out an infant born in the harsh, nearly hateful gravity well of a death world is more capable of rendering aid by being placed next to an emergency client than I can after 56 Sedella cycles worth of experience and study. Well, um... It's enough to make picking up a hammer and nails seem like a natural decision, really. Then comes the facts of their unique, robust physical natures. They can exert themselves to exhaustion and operate at full capacity with the barest of rest periods. Some can stave it off even further, so long as they have a mild, fully legal liquid stimulus available and a clean mug to drink it. Watching dozens of work crews come to a screeching halt when they can't find the atmospheric components, pressure, or temperature variances, and all of them staring at a lone human, dragging their workload along the exterior gantry of a shipyard, is a thing of terror and majesty. They simply do not recognize the limitations as almost any sapient species should, could, or would. At first, I chalked it up to the fact that almost all of them are insane to such a degree as to influence their offspring to follow the same nigh-religious fervor for dedication, loyalty, and steadfastness in the fact of opposition, real and perceived. 
until such a time as I saw that even their orphans can, and did, exceed their counterparts from every other race that I've witnessed with them. One fateful day, though, it comes to mind. Whenever I think of the humans, I think of the Zedraxi insurgency. Zedraxi are, or rather were, insular, xenophobic, and downright unpleasant, and enjoyed that mindset on a cultural level. The humans, having met dozens of species by then, simply laughed it off and carried on with business as usual. That stellar cycle was a bad one for the Zedraxi people. They found themselves in possession of a shipping lane being used by the humans to ferry supplies for their perpetual missions of mercy. Their homeworld produces a vast amount of interstellar medicines, you see, as their soil has properties which mark it as a primitive yet productive, according to the lay scientists of my own people. We really need to work on our terminology, especially as it involves humans. The first quarter of that specific stellar cycle, the Zedraxi attacked one of the Mission of Mercy ships, the IPU St. Jude IV, named for one of their long-dead religious zealots who supported long-abandoned causes, ideologies, and medical cases. Miracles were attached to their venerated symbol, which I can respect, frankly, with their unique gifts being so inborn to them. A miracle or two wouldn't be too far out of place, really. After the Zeraxi bragged about how the religious personnel were fed into their own fusion engines, and the supplies shot into the nearest star, eschewing all value to them, the human simply smiled, closed communications, and went dark for a few lunar cycles. The warlike Gred immediately pulled every resource and ally from the sector of space, as did the Loibai Agesta, and both of the perpetually warring clans of Denai who infested the asteroid belts littering the region. All of those races had once, at some point, sparred lightly with the humans. The Zedroxy did not recognize what those signs meant. How could they? No human enemies were known, only their many, many allies. So many allies they littered the skies of thousands of worlds. Many with welcome signs affixed to places no human foot would ever tread, written in sole prime common tongues, brightly lit at every moment, constantly announcing themselves as friends of the human race. Today we talk about the humans, and I all think about wood. I grow it in abundance here, in what used to be one of the largest deserts. Once they realized that the interstellar sales of lumber would profit them immensely, they erased a desert and installed a jungle. At some point, it had been one. Presumably, they liked sand the first time. Their tastes change, I guess. For now, I'm happy. My fans are covered in sawdust, not blood. My wonderful friends have gifted me with a phenomenal contract, which practically guarantees me a lifelong program of labor and productivity. All at such a glorious profit. I can not breed fast enough to make heirs in sufficient numbers to render me poor ever again. This, incidentally, is from a species which lays eggs by the thousands in our season. Do consider that in depth, if you please. My factories now make coffins. We are the only ones who produce them for the humans now. My species' unique physiology of multiple limbs 
Soul-like claws, expressive, intuitive minds, and affable modes of personal conduct were naturals at the job, practically born to be an ally to anyone and everyone. Well, not everyone, of course. You killed our ambassador for peace when you shot down St. Jude 4. We asked for this contract and for the help. They enjoy helping their friends so very much. So, Prime Minister Hagal, you have my sympathies and regrets to what is left of your people, the Zedraxi. You also have to get to work soon. Your friends are counting on you. End of story. Story number two. Survival, written by Provisional Rebel. Humanity entered the galactic stage in an age of strife. A war raged between a number of federations, and soon they entered the fray with the gift of FTL technology from the Council. Officially, the United Governments of Earth were neutral at the outset, at least. But many of its citizens were swayed by the liberation of death camps in the Thassian Imperium, some were hired as mercenaries and privateers, mostly looking for bodies to inflate their prices rather than considering them worthy soldiers, and yet more enlisted with the Council's auxiliary divisions. Regardless of where they ended up, the galaxy soon learned the horrifying truth of this young race. Humans cannot die. A grotesque oversimplification, because, as we know, Humans are every bit as mortal as the rest of us. But it only took a single pick feed recording a human stabbing a Thurisian soldier to death. He was propped up against the inside of a trench. After having lost an arm and being shot several times in the torso and left for dead by the mercenaries who hired him, the Thassian helmet recorded him as it tried to loot his pockets for valuables. But... With a single furious swipe, the human had lodged a piece of reinforcement bar through the side of the enemy's neck and killed him instantly. The rumors quickly began to spiral out of control. Humans rising from the dead to enact their vengeance on the enemy. They became even wilder when it was discovered that the soldier had both survived the battle with the aid of another human and, upon being returned to Earth, received what was now called Augmetics, from their more refined medical personnel. Thomas Jackson became a legend, and many journalists clamored to discuss what surely must be a harrowing but unique tale of survival. The council races were shocked when they saw the interview took place in a hospital specializing in these augments. Legs, Arms and even organs were replaced with machinery, some from accidents and some from wars and conflicts fought on their home world itself. But there was finally an explanation to be found from the experts in human biology. Humans lack bliss. In a whole of the known galaxy, death comes with the release of endorphins and a catastrophic wounds to the body see the brain drowned in chemicals to protect us from pain and ease our suffering so that we can die in peace. However, when a human body is damaged, it is sent into overdrive with potent toxins like adrenaline. They will bite and claw and fight with every ounce of their strength to survive and are capable of doing so, even after significant damage. This was not a unique mutation or a fluke that had allowed the young human to overcome death. 
It was the whole species who was able to shrug off pain and wounds and continue fighting for hours or even days if provided field care. They can be killed, to be sure, with enough damage to certain organs. But a human with an ounce of life left will fight for war. This, of course, allows humans to engage in what can only be described as suicidal tactics, such as their drop pod assault forces. The impacts of these pods could very well kill many non-humans who attempted to make a planet fall in such a manner. But many worlds were liberated in the decades after their introduction, and sieges that had lasted years were shattered. Perhaps now, then, we should consider the truth as we know it. Humans cannot die is a Theosian ghost story of a long war, but their failing to die is all too easy. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 867. The Human Hunt, written by Clockinator. Milky Way, Western Hemisphere, inside a local star system with 12 planets and 37 moons. A small military vessel with a maximum crew complement of 50 hovers over a planet covered in lush forests, deep oceans, and clean rivers. This vessel, a training craft of the Crocodile Empire, sports a light armament of dual photon cannons, a pair of anti-missile ballistic cannons, and a few Sidewinder missiles. Despite the ship's vulnerabilities, few would be foolish enough to attack it, given its call sign and who it belongs to. Aboard the vessel, aptly named the Scaled Eye, a tall and imposing crocodilian paces back and forth before ten other significantly smaller and younger members of his species. As bipedal beings, they sport thick legs, hands which end in steel-rending claws, and a tail which allows them to keep their balance. Additionally, as highly evolved crocodiles, they also possess huge, elongated mouths capable of crushing anything which enters their maw. The Crackdell Commander, a blue-scaled fellow with blood-red eyes, folds his claws behind his back, and he assumes a dignified posture as he slowly paces back and forth in front of the smaller crocodile before him. Ah, you have all eagerly anticipated this day for four years now. You passed your training, and soon you will prove yourselves as true-blooded crocodile. The commander pauses to gesture out the bridge's window towards a beautiful green orb floating in space. This planet is known as Taurus II. Once, it was home to our former enemies, the Kasu. Now, it belongs to our glorious empire. It is our personal playground, one where we can set up training exercises for hot-blooded youths such as yourselves. The commander's words ring with self-absorption, pride, and an overblown ego, but the sheer conviction behind them fills the recruits' hearts with ease. His confidence spills over into their thoughts, making them believe that he can do anything in this moment. Don't get cocky, Growl, the commander says, warning his pupils. Today is part of your initiation. You will undergo a brutal test that has sent many promising warriors to the Forbidden Swamp. While tragic, their deaths are a warning to us all, and especially you. You must not act in complacency. This test will decide your future in the Crackdale Empire. 
Your only choices are to flee or fight. The recruits nod along, listening intently to the commander's words. Today, I'll send all ten of you to the training grounds together. Roar! This test will require that you work together to achieve a common goal. As warriors, you will often have to battle enemies in teams, and so your individual combat prowess will be less important than your ability to unify. I care not who you designate as leader, the support, or any other such roles. You will decide amongst yourselves who amongst you is Alpha. Now, regarding your mission, the commander says, motioning with his hands to summon a holographic projection of a naked, bipedal alien before himself. During the next week, you will engage in a brutal hunt, one which will upend every notion you have regarding Kruktal supremacy. One of the recruits leans forward to stare at the floating holograph with widened eyes. Grag, Commander Rockfist, isn't that a human? Grog, a human indeed, Rockfist replies. None of you young bloods may have seen one in the flesh before, but doubtless you have watched many documentaries regarding their appearance. Another recruit pipes up, this time a purple-scaled male. Grog, Commander Rockfist, are we to hunt this human? Something about him looks different than the hollow videos our instructor showed us. Rockfist's eyes take on a curious glint. Ah, so you noticed. Excellent eyes. Recruit Stormjaw. I am sure most of you have heard stories of the Precursor's reappearance 500 years ago. When they appeared, the humans seemed a benign threat to most of the galaxy. But we, Crocktail, had already experienced the horrors once before. We knew the feats of which they were capable. Simply put, if a hundred of you young bloods were to face off against the monsters in our midst, the humans of today, you would all die. You would not even be able to cry out for your mothers, so pitiful would your deaths be. The commander begins pacing again, his eyes taking on a distant look. Humanity has already swelled to 500 million members. A trifle compared to the number of the Redux, the Malalai, and the other sentients. But those numbers mean nothing. A single, well-trained human can take out dozens of threats before they close the distance. Even I, with all of my years serving under the Thulbuk, would never stand a chance against a human. That is why we have altered the parameters of your test. Rockfist continued. Modern humans are far too terrifying for you to defeat. Therefore, we have mimicked the DNA of ancient humans to create composite clones of their Neanderthal, which was one of the oldest recorded human ancestors that we could find. This fellow here will be your opponent. Compared to this era's humans, he is a dim-witted simpleton, incapable of comprehending technology or advanced military tactics. Recruit Stormjaw frowns. Gag, no offense, Commander, but this seems a bit uh, easy. If we are to hunt this uh, Neanderthal, then won't we possess decisive advantage? Is that what you think? Rockfist asks, smiling slyly. 
You go to the planet unarmed and without any defensive equipment. Admiral Kogara designed this test to stress you to your absolute limits, and therefore he placed the Neanderthal on the planet one full year ago. You will enter the human's territory, his domain, and you will face him with whatever traps he has laid, crude and primitive though they may be. Only by slaying him within one week will you achieve victory. Rockfist gestures to a nearby female Kraktal, someone with grey scales wearing a simple white uniform. Grah, this is researcher Gongina. She is one of the Kraktal who created the Neanderthal. Gongina, please enlighten my recruits. The researcher nods, then takes a few steps towards the holographic image. She summons another image, this time of a slimmer human. One much better resembling the modern ones all the recruits have seen. Do not underestimate the Neanderthal, Gongina says, her tone icy. Current era humans are smart and dexterous. They employ a million tricks to deceive and confound their foes. But they can also resort to raw technological superiority to crush their enemies. The Neanderthal may not even have 1,000 tricks at his disposal. But he makes up for it with his sheer Body size. Look here at the fellow's abdominal muscles, Gajina says, gesturing to the Neanderthal's stomach. As an omnivore, he can consume practically anything to restore energy. Ancient humans were even more adept at their modern counterparts at foraging and hunting, so you will not be able to defeat him in endurance, especially when you cannot consume plants to survive. Likewise, note the difference in the Neanderthal and modern humans' muscular and skeletal structures. The Neanderthal stands two heads taller, and his body is better built to withstand damage. While inferior to the crocodile scales, you should only underestimate his defenses at your own peril. That's right, Rockfist says. The Neanderthal may be dim-witted compared to our era's enemies, but he is more than a match for the likes of you. To kill this ancient human, you will need teamwork and strong leadership, but most importantly, a firm heart. Researcher Gajina nods at Rockfist, then takes a step back, returning the floor to him. The commander takes another minute of hatching out the specific parameters of the mission, then gestures to the pilot. Set us down just outside the Neanderthal's territory. Use these coordinates. After Rockfist pulls out a datapad and sends the land coordinates to the pilot's console, she nods. Yes, Commander. Minutes pass. The lightly armored craft descends through the planet's atmosphere, jarring the inhabitants slightly, but not causing any actual harm. Once it reaches the ground, it pops open in the side hatch and extends an exit ramp, revealing a gorgeous world outside. Ah, this planet is a veritable oasis, Rockfist boasts. The Talvak Kisakundras plans to turn Taurus II into a second homeworld for our people soon. The vicious predators here are a bit worrying, but with time we will prevail. The commander steps outside and gestures to the door. Well, what are you waiting for? Get out there and begin the human hunt. Yes, commander, all the recruits cry in unison as the young crocodile depart the vessel and head towards the nearby forest. Commander Rockfist closes the hatch, then returns to the bridge. His pilot turns to look at him. 
Commander, do you think these soft scales will succeed in killing the human? Rockfist smirks. Right, I forgot. This is the first time you've observed Admiral Kogara's training method. Fifty years ago, you and I trained the old way, by slaying ten vicious predators on hostile worlds all by ourselves. Compared to hunting one human with a group of ten, our test was much too easy. Commander Rockfest eyed the holographic human, admiration glowing in his eyes. What fine predators these creatures are. They evolved on a world ripe with threats that wished to kill them. They took control, subdued the planet, and then fought aliens far beyond their comprehension, with technology defying imagination. No, Miss Vorkan, the commander says to his pilot. My pupils will not defeat the human. In fact, they aren't supposed to. That was never the true intent of this exercise. The commander's eyes glow with hunger. It is the human who will hunt them. They are his prey. Only the fittest will escape his clutches. The pilot nods. I see. Truly, this test is most unfair. Perhaps one or two of the recruits will survive and join the ranks of the Kraktal elites. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 868 Pretty Little Death Walders, Hermes's Gambit The High Senate of the Stellar League was in session. They had convened in the protected bunker at Union, rather than in the ornate but not well-defended Senate Hall. There were no crowns in attendance this time. It was the main ambassadors and their guards. Strangely, Yamada found it more comfortable than the usual place. Do you think it's true? Ambassador Yandananala spoke. Of course, a curious tale told by a captured lost technician. It's probably an exaggeration. Ambassador walks with words, said confidently. Propaganda designed to influence the populace towards violence. Doesn't matter if it's true, Ambassador Dalpermanar asked. Based on what the technicians said, the entire species probably believes the story without question. We have to approach the story as if it's true, because they are. Ambassador Krautdor Jun drummed his fingers on the desk thoughtfully. Is it really important for us to know this, he wondered aloud. It doesn't change the situation. Dal Promenar buzzed in a way that Yamada had come to recognize as the Senzeti version of a wicked smile. On the contrary, this is very important for us to know. That technician just told us that the last only have one space station. They have no homeworld left and no reinforcements waiting to help. True, that was a game changer. The plan up until this point had been to find a way to destroy that space station. Now they knew that this was tantamount to genocide. It would have to be disabled without completely destroying its ability to sustain life. It also tells us, Dal Promenar continued, that the last aren't born to hate everything else. They're taught. Somewhere in their heads is the possibility of reasoning with them. If we couldn't, that technician would never have talked to us in the first place. Yes, the Ambassador Zosini. And while we're discussing this, they're methodically burning their way through billions of people. We're not going to stop them just by pointing out that we're people, too. 
It was a surprisingly violent statement by the doozy. Zazina had been very stressed of late. The doozy had been the first victims of this war, after all. The other ambassadors were keeping their distance from her, for fear of her stress-amplified toxins. The honored doozy ambassador is correct, Yamada said. If human history has taught my people anything, it's that when someone is trying to exterminate you, you hit them back first and then explain why they shouldn't commit genocide. And if they try it again, you keep hitting and explaining until they get it. That was a simplified explanation, of course, but it got the point across. Big Nines, you have officially lost it. Pack Commander. Really, what did they do to you in there? Pack Commander Cull shook her head in disbelief. Is it really so hard to believe? Big Nines felt that he was fighting a losing battle on this one. All I'm doing is repeating what they told me. You believe in a bunch of idiots. I wouldn't if there wasn't evidence to back it up. Big Nines waved a paw for effect. It explains why we're alive and largely unharmed. It's for indoctrination. If it was, they're doing a very bad job of that, given that they're letting us refuse alien media. If they wanted to brainwash us, they'd be a lot more aggressive about it, don't you think? He took a deep breath and continued. Plus, uh, it explains why they haven't all murdered each other. Interspecies betrayal is not inevitable as we thought it was. Do you realize what the implications of that are, technician? Pack Commander Cull was looking him straight in all four eyes. That implies that the last could have cooperated with any species we met in the last few centuries, instead of wiping them out. That's the kind of realization that could end a civilization. There, some big nine spines went off. Hack, Commander, please think about what you just said. Carl was about to respond, but then froze. Outside the pack commander's room, Big Nines could hear a lot of activity. Training exercises and games, coupled with the sounds of his compatriots relaxing and scheming. Sounds like them could probably be heard across the entirety of the Stellar League space, he realized. Soldiers training to fight against annihilation. Total war. But the Stellar League citizens had known peace. Big Nines had only ever known war. There wasn't a single last alive who'd ever known true peace. There was only act of war and the spaces in between. Cal looked sick. If, um, if this concept gets out, we'll be destroyed, Big Nines. Our entire civilization would collapse. And we can't even be sure we're right. She shook her hand. This cannot leave the room. So we should just let billions continue to die, Big Nine snapped. Back, Commander, that's an atrocious thing to say. Billions of aliens, billions of people, Pack Commander Cal snarled. This is verging on treason, technician. They have homes, they have packs, they have lives. Big Nine's gestured through the window to the wider planet beyond them. You know me, Pack Commander. You know I'm not a bleeding heart. I'm just stating the facts as I see them. I know. Pack Commander Cal sat down hard on the edge of her bed. She was shaking a little, as if she were about to throw up. I know. She huffed 
in displeasure. I wanted to work on the craft proper, you know. It was my dream to be involved in the firing of the main gun someday, to protect our people. I think everyone wants to work on that thing, honestly. It's a pretty cool gun. She barked a laugh. Big Nine sat down on the bed next to her. They sat there for a few minutes, not talking, just listening to the world around them and their own nervous breathing. Big Nines looked around the room. It was functional, but it also looked a lot nicer than his bunk back on the insert name here had. He wondered why these aliens cared so much about how things looked. Was that a side effect of peace? With nothing to kill, they just decided to funnel their energy into making things look pretty. He kind of liked that idea. Permission to suggest something ridiculous, Pack Commander. I don't recall giving you permission for any of the other ridiculous suggestions today. So, go ahead. Big Nines thought about how to phrase his suggestion. If we could communicate these ideas to a war queen, do you think she'd listen? Hmm, I mean, I've never met her, but she's always seemed very intelligent to me. I think she'd at least listen, even if she didn't ultimately agree with us. We'd probably never get an audience with her, though. She's got more important people to talk to than a pack commander and a destroyer technician. Yeah, that's the... Pack commander Cull trailed off. Her eyes went wide. Big Nines, um, does your sword work match your boasting... I'm not gonna like this, am I? He growled in annoyance. Fine! Awaiting orders, Pack Commander. And so it came to pass that Big Nines and Art Edwards were once again sitting across from each other in the interrogation room. I must admit, technician, I'm very surprised that you wanted to talk to me again. Well, I've been doing a lot of thinking since our last talk and I also conferred with the back commander regarding what you told me. I decided that it might be worth trying to learn some more about my captors. Edwards nodded, a gesture which Big Nines had come to understand as one of assent or approval. They checked their notes. So, what did you want to talk about? I wish to do another information exchange. I will answer one of your questions, then ask one in return, until one of us no longer wishes to speak. I don't intend to give away any sensitive military information, and I don't expect you to do so either. Edwards smiled. Bearing teeth in approval was apparently something the humans and the last had in common. Very well. For my first question, I've noticed your people seem to either have names or serial numbers to identify individuals. All of the species in the League used names exclusively. Why the numbers? A good question. To maintain our fighting population, we use an artificial wombs to reproduce. If you're born from a vat, you have a number. If you're born naturally, you have a name. And you can earn the other through valor. Ah, I assumed it was a rank thing. Big Nines wrinkled his nose. Sometimes neighbors can be a bit stuck up about it. And sometimes us vatters can be a bit boastful about being bred for combat. Not really a rank thing unless you earn both. Now it was time for Big Nines' question. What is the honest opinion that your people have of ours? Edwards leaned back in his chair, thinking about the question. I mean, uh, 
The general populace certainly aren't happy with you. A lot of people want to see the reasoned with, if possible. I admit that my own species are mostly in the camp of blasting you out of the sky. But there's a few dissenters. Oh, and the Zavadi absolutely hate you. That was interesting. The Stellar League wanted to try reasoning with the last, but there were several of those who wanted them dead. That was a telling admission. It was certainly a lot more believable than the idea that the whole League wanted to hold hands and be friends. If Edwards had said something like that, Big Nines would have assumed it was a lie and ended the interview right there and then. My turn then, uh, what are the Unchained? We've heard them mentioned, but, uh, Big Nine shuddered. Ah, well, uh, that's sort of complicated. Don't tell me. It counts as sensitive military information, doesn't it? Not really. It's more of an uncomfortable to talk about. Big Nine strummed his fingers on the desk as he thought about his answer. So, um, you know how you all get angry, and you'll want to be violent, but you stop yourself because it's not appropriate or a good idea. Yes? The Unchained are modified so that they don't stop themselves. They're given massive amounts of combat training, plus a bunch of steroids and other enhancers. So, they're their killing machines who just don't stop. On top of that, they're sometimes trained to be pilots. They did suicide bombing runs in the battle that I was captured in. Edwards looked a little paler at that. Big Nines noted the reaction to try and figure out what it meant later. His best guess at the moment was fear, or possibly disgust. Good God. Right, Edward cleared his throat. Your question, then. You spend a lot of effort making things around here look nice, um, even when it's probably inefficient. Why? Edwards was obviously confused by this question. Because, uh, why not, I suppose? We judge the inefficiency to be worth it, I smile. Do you like how it looks? I, well, um, yes, I do. The barracks and crew nests on our own ships and station aren't unpleasant, but I do like how this place looks. Edward frowned. Damn, that was my next question, wasn't it? Big Nines laughed loud. It was. Now for mine. Time to put out the big guns. What is your league's goal for winning this war? What will you count as a victory over us? Oh, interesting. I suppose our goal is for you to stop murdering us by the billions. Whether you do that by negotiating peace or just leaving us alone is up to you. We'll fight to the death if necessary, but we'd really rather not wipe you all out. My question, do you think your leaders could be persuaded to stop? I think they could. War Queen Pia Marini is a wise, wise leader, and her council have a great deal of honor. I seriously doubt that they'd want to murder all of your people if they thought there was another way. Edwards noted that the technician was accepting the League's actions as murder. That was a step from before. You certainly have a lot of respect for your leaders. I hope you're right about them, for everyone's sake. Edwards motioned for Big Nines to ask his next question. Are you willing to take a large risk to end this war? Edwards sat up straight. I see where this is going. You want to be sent back to your craft so that you can negotiate with your war queen to try and stop the war. That's very brave of you, technician. 
No last has ever been captured by the enemy and survived. If I and my packmates were sent back to the craft unharmed, we would be instantly significant. We could explain that their war isn't necessary. Well, my answer is that I would have to confer with my superiors, but I'll certainly make your suggestion known. A pause. My turn. You said that you could earn a name for some kind of valor or bravery, yes? That is both correct and a very odd question. Edward smiled again. They looked Big Nine straight in the eyes. Well, if you get a choice about the matter, Hermes is the ancient human deity of messengers and was also known to be quite clever. Just suggesting this plan is very brave of you, at least in my eyes. Hermes. The name was strange and certainly alien, but it had a nice sound to it. Every last liked to imagine the hypothetical name or number for when they proved themselves without question. Technician 099-827. Hermes. It wasn't bad. Wasn't bad at all. A bit hard to pronounce with the last slips, but doable. Thank you. That's quite a kind of you to say. He looked Edwards up and down. 013-114. Because one respectful suggestion deserves another. 013-114, Art Edwards, and 099-827 Hermes continued their conversation for some time, learning of each other's worlds and societies. Not much in terms of tactical knowledge was learned after this point, but an understanding was established. By the end of it, both were hoping that the other would not be dead within the year. End of chapter Tales from Outer Space 869 Story Double One Contingency Plan Written by Echoing Cascade Lesha was running to her room. She was running for her life. She was running from a nightmare. She had known that this was a possibility since she was a youngling. She had had many discussions with a matriarch who reassured her that it would probably never ever happen again in her lifetime. Yet here she was, the station's alarms were blaring and the scourge were on her trail. She managed to make it to her room, panting, exhausted, but alive. Then she heard noises from her roommate's bed. Oh gods, no... If Laura was one of them, she was very, very dead. Death Wilder was strong enough to tear her limb from limb in normal circumstances, and if she was infested, Lesha pushed that thought out of her mind. She wasn't dead yet. She mustered her courage and asked her roommate a simple question. Lesha, are you okay, Laura? Laura was barely awake at that moment. She had heard some sort of alarm. At least she guessed it was an alarm. Galactic standards for auditory cues were low enough that most humans could sleep through the fire drills. Laura looked at her panicked roommate. She was panting hard and looked like she had just seen a ghost. She noticed for the first time that the lights had turned ever so slightly blue. Laura, yes, what's with the anemic light show and slightly annoying alarm? Laura thought that it was either the galaxy's least enthusiastic rave, or something was wrong. Blusha let out a sigh. The death wilder was not infested. She sagged with relief and began to sob. 
Laura was taken aback. Her roommate was a scodge, bipedal, skinny, shorter than the average human, and vaguely marsupial. She was also tough as nails. She had joined the academy at the same time as her. While Laura was going to join the long-range recon, Lesha was going to work in logistics. She still had to complete basic training, though. Laura remembered that Lesha had broken a leg and walked herself to the infirmary. With no help, all so much as a grimace. This is the same Lesha that was crying in a heap like a lost child. Laura, what the hell's going on? What's with the alarm? How can I help? Lesha willed herself to calm through meditation. If the human opened the door, she would doom them both. Lesha, it's the scourge. They're inside the station. We are dead. Laura paused. The statement was completely sincere and left no room for negotiations. She believed that they were already dead, and nothing would change that. That being said, she didn't plan to go down without a fight. So Laura reached for her standard combat kit under her bed. Lesha, that won't work. They don't really have a nervous system that we can short-circuit with stun weapons, even at max setting. Laura shrugged and reached for a different box. This one contrasted the grey, featureless one that contained her combat gear. This one was all black and had a white human skull and bones. She pulled what Lesha looked like one of the human slug throwers and strapped it to her hip, alongside a dagger that would look more like a sword in her hands. Laura, I'm guessing they're pirates or something like that. Lesha shook her head. The scourge was an old shame of the consortium. They had started a war of annihilation, and when it came clear that they would lose, they released a virus that would ensure that no one would win. Through the sacrifice of countless colonies and billions of lives, they had stopped the scourge virus. But it would surface now and then, through accidents, all the odd doomsday cult. Le Shah spoke with an almost robotic voice now. She had completely dissociated herself for the feelings in order to appear calm. Le Shah, no, they are infected, and those that bite turn into more of them, turn into monsters. Laura then did something that took Le Shah by surprise. She smiled. Laura, really? She then pulled another box from under her bed. It was red and had what looked like an even older slug thrower painted on it with a sharp piece of wood. Laura, let me guess, they drink blood, fly, and can charm sentience by looking them in the eyes. Lesha, what? No, why would... Laura interrupted her. Laura, okay, so they turn into feral creatures, via silver, and howl at the moon. Lesha was looking like a normal soft now, more out of confusion than being genuinely calm. Lesha, of course not, wait. Is that a thing in your world? Laura put the box back under her bed with a pout. Laura, not really. So, what is the scourge then? Lesha didn't want to recount what they were up against. What would ultimately kill them? But Laura had the right to know. Lesha, the infected die eventually, but they, they don't stay dead. They get up and try to eat the living. Their saliva carries the virus. They're an old bioweapon from a long-gone race. 
What Lashan saw next, she would never forget to the day she died. Her seemingly sane roommate grabbed a green box from under her bed with a large yellow Z on it and skipped to the bathroom, saying the word that didn't translate, zombies. Laura emerged from the bathroom wearing a skin-tight black suit and a grin. Laura spun in place to show off her gear. Laura, like it, it's made of smart fabric, becomes bite-proof when exposed to pressure that could break human skin. I've seen it tested. You would need an industrial cutter to get through it. Nora then put her uniform on top of it, strapped the slug throat back onto her hip, but instead of the dagger, she now had a large, curved forward blade the length of her leg. Nora, how many? Lisha was confused, but quickly regained her wits. Lisha, I ran past four or six on the way here. You're not thinking of finding them, Laura's smile faded from her face as she cut her off. Laura, serious question time. Laura then got very close to Lashat's face. Laura, do they run or do they shamble? Lashat, how could they run? Did you not hear me? They're dead. You can't find them. They... Laura stopped her by drawing her side arm and loading a magazine. Laura, just shoot them in the head. Lisha looked at the blade Laura was inspecting. She had no doubt that it could go through the cranium of any sentient on the station, and from what she knew of human weapons, so could her gun. Lisha, you're going out there, aren't you? Laura was all smiles again. Uh, yep. Before leaving, she turned to Lisha. She looked like a mess again. Laura then removed the gun from her hip and handed it and the belt with the extra magazine to her. Laura. It's not that much different from a pulse rifle, just with a bit more kick. I'm sure you'll figure it out. Lock the door behind me. Did you see any infected I know out there? Lisha. Only moan. Laura. Oh. Laura shrugged. Laura. Never liked her. After which, she opened the door and rushed outside. General Vedras was at a loss for words. A single human cadet had cleared an entire station from scourge infection, and she only asked for a single accolade as a reward. General Vedras had never had to hand the medal that read, Knife only, no damage, before in his life. But it would not be the last time. End of story. Story number two. We own the day. Written by Lords of Dupe. Such a small thing, that fragile world. The Terrans founded a colony there and said nothing as we applied tax after tax, even raiding their shipping lanes. All they said was, one night we will remember, and carried on with the business of living, as they say. If they thought we feared darkness, they were wrong. Our history as daytime predators is well known, as every species beneath us on the galactic food chain knew all too well, and ready to their profit. We were fools. Easy pickings. Every scavenging and pirate faction said those words about the Terrans. Barely armored ships, scarcely armed troops, rarely present patrols, negligible perimeter scanning technologies. And we believed everything that we were told. 
They practically loaded those containers into our ship holds and smiled so brightly. Those infuriating smiles. You could punch him in the face until it was bloodied, and that would be all that they did in reply. They rarely ever fought back, and if they did, it was a token effort. They'd crawl away, find a terminal to communicate with their people, and say those strange words. One night we will remember. Every reputable defense contracting service would routinely take them on as clients, and often to the detriment of the Terrans' financial well-being. They never run out of money, those Terrans. It was a deny who said, and these words may be written in the largest font in the vastest tomb of what all worlds acknowledge as understatements. The only thing they have more of than patience are anger and resolve. Those peaceful morons. It did not make sense. Deny a race and culture of scavengers, looters, and for hire thugs. And they have those nearly kind words to say about one's favorite victim. We racked our brains and could not make sense of it. The deny are ruthless and engaging tactics which exceed cutthroat in the same way that a fusion missile exceeds a closed first. We were fools. Our home world was a trade-up, all space lanes leading to it, providing our vessels with a singular destination for incoming fees, taxes, and assorted seized goods. We thought so little of that nearly derelict ship filled with empty decanters of coolants and technical manuals about cryogenic preservation. That and all of those empty crates were small arms and explosives. We thought nothing. Then we heard the seismic activity in our polar regions of our homeworld. A volcano, a thousand years silent, suddenly rousing, spitting out ash and smoke and debris, clotting the seas with discharges of lava, fouling sonar capabilities in ways we never thought of, and as we discovered, could counteract. They'd smuggled themselves on our world by hiding in the prizes they handed over so willingly. Then our luxury liners began to vanish. Then the seaside resorts of the idle rich. Then the military units who worked those seas. And then they began to sing to us. Every time the growing night fell, using stolen radios and hostage transmitters. That's all that they do now. They've clogged the sky so thick that we can't risk spacecraft through our own atmosphere. Firing a laser or ion cannon into the ash layer just makes it harder, and the situation more dire. Which is why we know they're doing it so often. For them, they knew that it was a one-way trip. This does not seem to bother them in the slightest. If anything, they become meaner as the days go on, such as they do. Our nights were once scant half-cycle longer. Now, they're almost all of it. We cannot see either of our moons. We can hear the hollow words of our allies as they witness us being torn apart in the growing dark. And we can hear the humans singing to us as they finish what they promised. One night we will remember. That night is forever. End of story.
And that, my friends, concludes this week's roundup. I hope that you enjoyed. If you wish to support the channel, there are numerous ways in the description. And please don't forget, there are links to these stories and the authors as well. If you enjoyed them, please head over there and show them some support. Anyways, and I will see you all next week. And until then, I hope you all have a fantastic time. Cheers.